0: Hello my friends, welcome back to Garda Goes Geek. On today's episode we're going to be taking a look at the different cinematic adventures of Batman to try and answer the question once and for all, who is the best Batman? Now Batman is a character who Probably needs no introduction. Uh, I imagine most people are familiar with at least one iteration of the character. However, I'm going to give just a little brief overview anyway. Um, Batman is the orphan, Bruce Wayne. Um, Bruce Wayne witnessed his parents' murder when he was a child. uh, As they were gunned down in an alley of the fictional Gotham City. Um, His parents... um, Thomas and Martha Wayne were billionaires, and as a result, Bruce inherited their fortune. As he grew older, with the help of his um, butler, Alfred Pennyworth, he began to use his fortune to fight crime um, so as to prevent um, any other children suffering the same way he had with the loss of his parents. Um, He engages in a one-man war on crime in Gotham City, um, soon adopting the the ward Dick Grayson um, as his crime-fighting uh, colleague uh, Robin um, and liaising with um, Police Commissioner Gordon of the GCPD to fight firstly the organised mob and then later uh, an increasing number of supervillains, most famously the Joker, Catwoman, Riddler, Two-Face, Scarecrow, and several others. Um, Batman would then go on to become one of the founding members of the Justice League and one of the principal DC Comics superheroes. He was originally created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger, um, although credited as Bob Kane for a large amount of time until Bill Finger's estate managed to uh, get equal credit. Uh, and he originally appeared in Detective Comics issue 27, um, which was released in May 1939. He proved very popular from his first appearance, and within a year had his own title, Batman, um, which featured both himself and Robin, um, as well as started to introduce some of his own recurring villains joker and catwoman appeared in the first issues of um the first issue of batman uh robin himself had appeared uh for the first time in detective comics 38 11 months after batman's first appearance throughout the decades batman has gone on to have numerous appearances he's been one of um dc's most famous characters he's been adapted into animated series, radio dramas, cinema serials, um, and even multiple films, which we're going to be discussing later on. Um, He's a very, very popular and very enduring character. As I said, he's one of DC's most famous superheroes, and probably one of the most famous superheroes ever. As I said at the start, there are very few people who I think who would have... No idea of who Batman is, you know, between his appearances, not just in comics, but in, uh, you know, television, merchandise, films, video games. People have an idea of who this character is. And as I said, today I'm going to be looking at um, all of the cinematic versions of Batman. And trying to explore a very often discussed idea in geek fandom which is, who is the best Batman? Now, to do this, I'm having to, first of all, dig deep into creating almost a thesis statement as to what Batman is, Um, which is, you know, what makes Batman, Batman, which is a harder question that you might think. I mean, the character has a history that spans eight over 80 years of publication history. Um, he's gone through many different iterations just in the comics, never mind all the times he's been adapted. Um, for example, in, in many of his adaptations, he's this brooding loner figure. Yet, um, you know, the Bat family as it's called in the comics, encompasses not just Alfred, Robin, and Commissioner Gordon, but also Batgirl, numerous other Robins, like the original Robin Dick Grayson grows up and becomes the hero Nightwing, and is then replaced by multiple other people in the identity of Robin, um, including Batman's own son in more modern comics. Um, There's multiple iterations of the character Batgirl, there's other associated heroes, such as Huntress and Spoiler... You know, Batman as well also gets often quite characterised by his his strong friendships and trust with uh, Superman and Wonder Woman um, especially, but also other members of the Justice League. Um, he even formed his own team called the Outsiders, which featured um, Black Lightning, among many others. And yet, quite often, people will think of him as this this brooding loner figure who doesn't work well with the police and... You know is waging his one man war on crime and how how that affects his his own mental health and his psyche. you know some adaptions have Batman distrusted by the police and authority figures um you know while others have him almost as an agent of the law, like an actual deputized member of the police department in in effect um rather than a vigilante so working out what is the definitive attributes of the character Batman, you have to go through deep into his personality. And even then, the, as I've explained before in previous episodes, DC history has a habit, DC Comics has a his, habit of rebooting itself, which means their continuity does change. And as a result, certain iterations of Batman are almost completely different from other ones. Like the golden age Batman has very little in common with the modern day depiction of Batman. You know? Even the post-crisis Batman has very little in common with the modern day Batman. And this is without even getting into the the DC else worlds with stories like The Dark Knight Returns um, that are set outside of main continuity this is just looking at the the stories that are within main continuity you know stories like batman year 1 and batman the long halloween even create a very different depiction of the character to the one that's in for example hush um because obviously by the time you get to hush the character has gone through a load of character development he's had multiple robins be part of his bat family and they have evolved and changed him as a character Um, and so wanting to look at the film versions of these characters it became very important to me to try and understand what Batman was so that I could quantify them as as how accurate they were to the comics now some of it, there is going to be... Each, each of these adaptations of the comic, usually they're adapting from specific comic sources. Um, so each of them is kind of a snapshot in time at a particular iteration of Batman. But again, that also means that, um, you know, the different iterations of the character um, might also be a bad adaptation of Batman. You know, I've spoken before about the different comic book ages. The Golden Age was very optimistic. The Silver Age was kind of wacky and bizarre and a bit campy. The 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 Dark Age of comics was very grim and um, very overly serious. And obviously, we've had iterations of Batman in all of those. And in each of them, Batman has reflected the comic book zeitgeist of the time right through from 1939 all the way up to the modern day. Um, A lot of comic book superheroes disappeared in the 50s um, due to McCarthyism. Batman was one of the characters who was popular enough that he didn't, but his stories did take on a very different tone um, as a result. So, you know, you have to take that into account as well. So it becomes one of those to look at what Batman is, what the definite attributes of the characters are, I had to dig into Batman's personality. And I think I've come up with five core tenets of Batman's character through which I can judge all of the cinematic adaptations of Batman. So what are those five attributes? I'm going to list them for you now and tell you how I have defined them all. Okay, firstly, physicality. Batman is a strong physical threat and is remarkably disciplined. He has the physique of an Olympic athlete and is trained in multiple fighting styles. He is able to regularly stand against and even overcome superpowered opponents. He can function even in extreme pain or withstand torture. He is also incredibly stealthy, seemingly appearing and disappearing at will. He also disguises his voice as Batman. So that's the first core tenet, physicality. The second is capability. Batman is resourceful and capable of defeating most threats with time, effort and or preparation. He has escaped seemingly inescapable death traps. His utility belt is renowned for having a gadget for everything, including tools, weapons, and instruments to help in crime fighting. He is a skilled driver and pilot. Third tenet is intellectualism. Batman is incredibly intelligent and has an incredible knowledge base. He should feel like the smartest person in any room, even if he hides that fact. He should feel... He is regarded by many as a genius and is an accomplished polymath. For those that don't know, a polymath is essentially someone skilled in multiple different scientific disciplines, which is what Batman is meant to be. He is a proficient scientist regarded by many as the world's greatest detective. He also maintains a clear distinction between his two personas and is aware of the use they both have for good and ill. Now, I'm sure just by going through these three tenets, a lot of you have in mind how certain, cinematic, certain depictions of Batman exemplify or sometimes fail in adapting each of these three. Um, but I'm going to get to the final two, and then we're going to delve into the actual Batman we're studying. So the final two are Moral Character. Batman has a strong sense of justice and a strict code of morals, and is capable of showing compassion. Bruce Wayne especially is known for his philanthropic acts. He is driven by his parents' death and refuses to use handguns as a result. He has a reluctance to ever take a life. He doesn't hate many of his villains but pities them, feeling for their conditions and trying to help them as well as stopping them. Now, I'm going to take a brief interlude there because I know some people will probably be saying, oh, but Batman is killed in the comics and, you know, he used to use guns. You're right, he did. When he was first introduced in the Golden Age, Batman didn't have much concern about the lives of his enemies. In fact, his first confirmed kill was in his first appearance, where he knocks Alfred Stryker into a vat of acid. However, both... Bill Finger and Bob Kane mentioned that this was due to the influence of the pulp action heroes of the 30s and early 40s on comics. For example, characters like the Shadow and the Green Hornet, both of whom were well known for using firearms and often used lethal methods to dispatch their enemies. Now, this continued right up until Batman No. 1 received complaints Batman 1 received complaints um, for Batman killing um, from parents because children had become interested in the character following the introduction of Robin. As I said, Robin had been introduced just before Batman 1 in Detective Comics 38. Um, You know, Robin's appearance predates the Joker. Um, So he was introduced as a character that was to make the series appeal more to children, which it did. And it led to National Comics editor Whitney Ellsworth to tell Bill Finger to never use guns again. The editor later created a policy for all the published characters to prevent them from killing, which stated that heroes should never kill a villain, no matter the depths of his villainy. So officially, Batman's no-killing rule came into effect with Batman Issue 4, which was still... Created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger. Um, And it was during a sword fight with some pirates. Batman tells Robin, use only the flat of your sword. Remember, we never kill with weapons of any kind. And it wasn't long after that that he began working more closely with the GCPD. And was deputised as an agent of the law. So... Batman did continue to kill criminals in his stories for a while, although it was most often done indirectly um, by knocking them to hazards or throwing them off buildings. It changed more drastically after Batman ended up on a trip to the front lines in Batman issue 15. Um, And when Batman returned home to Gotham City... He refused to kill any enemies and even attempted to prevent their deaths. Now, this was all done by the original creators. Which means that, yes, while Batman has killed across the comics since, his no-killing rule and his avoiding guns has been a thing since the Golden Age of Comics since the original creators were still involved in writing Batman stories. So, while obviously some people do try and say, oh, you know, Batman kills, Batman uses guns, and therefore it's okay to do it in the films and any adaptation. No. No, I'm sorry. Any adaptation where Batman kills or uses a gun is automatically a bad adaptation of Batman as far as I'm concerned. Because the character should not kill and should not ever use a handgun. Specifically a handgun. He has used cannons on the Batmobile. He has used other weapons purely for the use of doing something. Like usually as a tool to to take down armoured vehicles or to break through walls so he can help people. However, he should never use a handgun. And he should never kill. And this has been in place since the 1940s by the original writers uh, of Batman. (laughs) So, you know, the original writers, the original editor. So for anyone to say, oh, but Batman does kill. Yeah, he does. He has done. That doesn't mean it's right. And that doesn't mean it's a good adaptation of Batman. And then the final tenet of Batman's character, trauma. Batman is a character defined by the trauma of losing his parents at a young age. It affects his whole mission and outlook, turning his mission as Batman into a crusade that he cannot escape and affects all other relationships in his life as he has to move past it to trust people. So that there is your core five tenets of what makes Batman, Batman. Physicality, capability, intellectualism, moral character, and trauma. And now I am going to make the case for every single cinematic Batman. So that is Adam West from the original 1966 Batman movie. Michael Keaton from Batman and Batman Returns. Kevin Conroy from Batman Mask of the Phantasm. It was released in cinemas. It's animated, but it was released in cinemas. Val Kilmer from Batman Forever. George Clooney from Batman and Robin. Christian Bale from the Dark Knight trilogy. So it's Batman Begins, The Dark Knight, and The Dark Knight Rises. Ben Affleck from Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice. And... Justice League. Will Arnett from the Lego Batman movie. Because yes, it's a cinematically released Batman movie. So it counts. And finally, Robert Pattinson. So yes, when they get to the end of this video, I will be discussing the most recent The Batman movie, starring Robert Pattinson by Matt Reeves. So I will be discussing spoilers. However, I will warn you, when I am about to discuss those spoilers um, for anyone who has yet to see the movie. However, if you've already seen the movie or you don't care about spoilers like myself, then by all means, feel free to stay listening and enjoy right throughout. So, with that said, let's get talking about different Batman. Adam West is the first cinematic Batman. Um... Well, he's regarded by many as the first. Technically, there were two cinematic serials that predated him in the 40s, um, starring Robert Lowry and Lewis Wilson. Um, One was Batman, one was Batman and Robin. Um, They both ran for 15 episodes, and they were sort of the serials that you'd get before a film, Um, which used to be common in the 40s. Obviously, this was predating television. So these more sort of shorter form, um, longer running serials um, that you would see in cinema screens, but they weren't necessarily a film were um, more common. But Adam West is the first true cinematic Batman in the fact that, that he was in a film that was designed as a film. However, he first played the role of Batman in the... 1966 Batman TV show. Uh, The film came out after the first season had finished. Now, it originally ran from January 1966 through to March 1968. Um, Aired twice weekly um, during the first two seasons um, before moving weekly for the third season. It was a show very very much of its time it's uh very campy it's got upbeat theme music uh bright colorful costumes it's intentionally humorous it's got quite a a simplistic morality being aimed at like a teenage audience um including things like using seat belts doing homework eating vegetables drinking milk etc um and it was basically a sitcom you know the 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 first Batman film was essentially the, the the first Batman series was essentially a sitcom but without a laugh track. Um Adam West played Batman, uh, Burt Ward played Dick Grayson. Um they had multiple uh characters appear as villains, multiple villains appear throughout the show. Um obviously most famously Cesar Romero as Joker uh Burgess Meredith as the Penguin, uh Frank Gorshin in as the Riddler, um and Catwoman, um who was played by Julie Newmar, um Lee Merriweather and Earth Kit. Uh Julie Newmar played her on the show, uh with Earth Kit taking over season three. Um Lee Merriweather played her in the movie. Um and obviously the other the other three also appeared in the film as well, which is why I've highlighted them. The Batman 66 film is bizarre. <laughs> I watched it for the first time um leading up to this episode. It's, yes, it's, it's very, very bizarre. Um It has a plot, but it's a very loose plot, it seems like. It seems almost like several episodes of the series kind of combined together um, and I wonder if that's how it originated. Um, starts with Batman and Robin getting a tip that uh, Commodore uh is in danger aboard his yacht so they launch a rescue mission. They go to land on the yacht um, when it vanishes beneath them which leads to Batman being attacked by a shark uh, which he fights off with bat shark repellent. Uh, well, no, shark-repellent bat spray, um, <laughs> causing the shark to explode, bizarrely. Um, they learn that the the tip was a setup um, on the part of the Joker, Penguin, Riddler, and Catwoman, who have all teamed up together, and have equipped themselves with an invention of Schmidlaps, um, who, by the way, is completely unaware that he's been kidnapped, um, which is a dehydrator, uh, which turns... People into dust, <laughs> and you know, they're running around in a, in a war surplus submarine uh, that they've bought off of the navy somehow. <laughs> and uh, missile they, they're able to fire missiles, but they only really use the missiles to write riddles in the sky, um, bizarre riddles with like. Clues such as uh, what's yellow and writes a ballpoint banana. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so we end up with Batman and Robin trying to try, try, try and find find the criminals where they are. Um, it ends with uh, Bruce Wayne at one point gets seduced by um, Catwoman disguised as a Soviet journalist, uh, Kitka. Um and to kidnap him as a plan to lure in Batman. Um which obviously doesn't work because of Bruce Wayne being Batman. Not that the villains are aware of that. Um Penguin at one point poses a lap and gets taken to the Batcave with five dehydrated henchmen, which he then rehydrates but uses accidentally uses heavy water, um, which the Batman and Robin have because they the the Batmobile runs using an atomic pile um which basically means they have to use heavy water to uh to cool the engine um uh, which makes the um the men the you know these goons unstable and they they pop disappear into nothing um. The villains then go and dehydrate and kidnap the United world Organization security council um and you know the the goons go after them to try and catch them. Um, they fight the villains, they defeat them. Um, they during the battle, Batman finds out that Kit Kerr is actually Catwoman when her mask falls off. Uh, Commodore Schmidlap manages to be escaped and breaks the vials containing the powdered council and sneezes on them, which mixes them up. So then batman creates this elaborate machine to filter out the mingled dust uh to restore them um yeah and robin at one point suggests whether you know to to get the the world security council to collaborate should they alter the dust samples um uh, but batman says that's something they can't do and reminds them about what happened to penguin's goons And their their only hope is for people to learn to live together peacefully on their own. And with the whole world watching, the Security Council gets rehydrated. And all the members are returned alive and well. But they're still squabbling, oblivious to their surroundings. uh, Just as they were when they were kidnapped. However, each of them now speaks with a language and mannerisms that is not their own. Um, And... So, suggesting that Batman didn't quite get everything right. Um, and they just leave United's World Headquarters in the middle of the, the kerfuffle and run off into the night. It's a bizarre movie. Very bizarre. But, it gives you a lot of good stuff with Batman. With Adam West Batman. That we can look at. Um, I'm not going to look at the series, I'm only going to look at the film, um, due to any potential that it might have to skew the result Um, you know, obviously, three seasons of a television show is a lot more than a film, um, but some other Batman only get the one film, so to look at who is really the best Batman, I think requires looking at just this film, and now so we're gonna see how Adam West measures in each category. So remember the first one, physicality. Batman makes no attempt to disguise his voice at all um in this film. He launches into battle as Bruce Wayne and holds his own at one point, but in his first fight is very easily overpowered. Um he does manage to swim to safety. Uh uh At one point, as Bruce Wayne, and at one point him and Robin managed to run down the streets of i think it's meant to be New york um and they managed to run faster than a taxi, like they actually say that that them running to the World Security Council will be faster than catching a taxi. Uh. There's so a lot of scenes where Batman fights multiple opponents uh, quite easily, including the supervillains and all their henchmen. Um, obviously none of the supervillains are especially superpowered. It's Joker, Riddler and Penguin. Um, but, you know, he does manage to hold his own against them and their henchmen very easily. He even at one point fences with Penguin, which, you know, I think Penguin's using an umbrella, but still, it's, it's a fencing battle, um, which is quite impressive for capability um, we get to see multiple gadgets and gizmos that batman has including the batmobile the bat boat the bat cycle and the bat copter um, also the repellent bat sprays of which shark repellent is only one there are several others um, there's an amazing array of equipment inside the bat cave itself uh, obviously, we that the Batmobile runs on an atomic pile, which basically means it is a, a nuclear-powered engine for the Batmobile. Um, he's got computers of all sorts in the Batmobile... Uh, in the Batcave, sorry. Um, he has a transmitter that can override the torpedoes that are aiming towards the Batboat, but it does run out of batteries at one point in the film, um, although later on in the film they have put new batteries in, uh, as they say. Um, he even manages to have an antidote to a gas that Penguin uses against them, like a Penguin's knockout gas um, that him and Robin are able to use. And they've they've planned that out. They've planned that out before Penguin unleashes it on them, that they've taken the antidote, which is clever. And they have a plan to pursue the crooks. Um, they're even able to attack the submarine from the bat boat with a device that launches bat charges um, that Robin's using. And obviously there's then the computer that they build to uh, save the council members to separate their dust, um, which it actually has a name. It's the super molecular dust separator to filter all the different um, dust. Although, How well that works, I think, is up for interpretation. Intellectualism. um, Batman is clearly thinking and puzzling over the mystery of the missing yacht. And he's able to explain his thinking to Robin. In fact, quite a lot of this film, um, Robin is used as a sounding board for Batman or vice versa. Um, They interpret between them the bizarre riddles that get given to them with ease despite how ridiculous the riddles are. um, We only really get told that Robin... We only really see Robin working the riddles out, but Batman does imply through his dialogue that he's already come to the same conclusions as Robin. You know, he says to Robin, I want to see if your thinking matches mine, Boy Wonder. Um, You know... Robin manages at one point to use the Bat-Signal to signal Bruce Wayne while he's with Kitka. Um, he was hoping to try and lure the villains out. And Robin comes up with the idea to to use the Bat-Signal because that will kind of lure the villains out. And um, it'll warn Batman that... It'll warn Bruce that he needs to leave Kitka and etc. And... Bruce immediately comes to the same conclusion once he realises what the bat signals for. And obviously it's narrative convenience that the two of them think so alike, but it is a nice touch. Um, And he does, at the end, he does save the World Security Council, despite their dehydrated parts being mixed, and despite there still being clearly some mixing. Um, You know, he did restore them. They are fully human again, uh, rather than piles of dust. As to the moral character, this is a very, very moral and upstanding member of the community iteration of Batman. He is, um, at one point he says that he and Robin are both fully deputised agents of the police force. They report directly to Commissioner Gordon. He also serves to inspire and guide Robin um, throughout the, the film. He tries... At one one scene, one very famous, very mean scene, involves him carrying a large bomb and trying desperately to find somewhere on this crowded pier to throw the bomb where it will not hurt anyone. Um, and you see him running desperately to avoid bystanders, to dispose of it, even at one point avoiding a family of ducks. Like, not just the people, but the ducks as well. Um to which he laments that you know some days you just can't get rid of a bomb and it's obviously it's played for comedy but it does show the moral character of batman he doesn't want anyone else to be hurt um when people are actually hurt around him such as the uh the rehydrated pirate goons who pop he actually seems to mourn their deaths um only briefly, obviously, but he does seem to mourn that they've just suddenly died, as if it is it is something sad and he feels, he feels bad about. He even, and then obviously there's the final thing where he does refuse Robin's suggestion to improve the council members to make them more amenable. Um, you know, saying that you shouldn't tamper with a person like that. And it's good. It's a very good depiction of how moral the hero can be. The trauma um, aspect, though, that is completely absent. There is no trauma in this Batman. There's no motivation of... Uh, no hint of what led to him to become Batman. Uh, there's no sense of any trust issues or anything. In fact, he trusts Robin implicitly and completely. Um, you know, we never see him doubting anything Robin does or vice versa. Um so yeah his his trauma is completely absent from the storyline <laughs> so yeah um that's adam west batman i have ranked all of the batmen as i've gone through and i will reveal be revealing the rankings going on um i had to go through each one and work out like where they all came in terms of physicality, was one a better representation of Batman's physicality over another one and so on for each of the other tenets. Um as you can imagine, um, uh, based on what I've already said, Adam West Batman, due to the um just the nature of how he's written, um, obviously sometimes with it being played for comedy and um, the amount of stuff he seems to have, and also the the narrative convenience in a lot of the writing, how he does have a gadget for everything um Adam West does score quite highly on certain things such as capability and intellectualism and moral character. However, as you can also imagine, he scores very, very low on trauma and physicality because his um you know there are other examples of more physical Batman. So, yeah, it's not a bad depiction of Batman. um, But there are better ones. Michael Keaton became the second actor to play Batman in a film. Uh, He actually appeared in two films, Batman in 1989 and Batman Returns in 1992, both of which were directed by Tim Burton. Um, and we both followed a very, very specific stylistic choice um, to embrace more of the, the darker, more gothic nature of both Batman and Gotham City, as well as the Rogues Gallery. As a result, they're generally considered more faithful adaptations than the 1960s show and movie. And as a result, Michael Keaton is also considered a much more faithful adaptation of Batman than adam west by nature of exploring that character's darker nature now for the most part i think i do have to agree um the michael keaton tim burton batman films are very good they hold up very very well as films um i rewatched them both fairly recently anyway um and even batman returns which i remember being quite dark and serious when i was um you know when i watched it before this um rewatching it in the lead up to this this episode it was actually a lot more fun than i ever remembered um there's a lot of fun and silliness to it um but not done in a in a campy way more done in the sort of the the twisted gothic way that tim burton does very very well um you know that's echoed in a lot of his other films like for example beetlejuice um where there's a more more twisted silliness i think is the best way to describe it again beetlejuice also starred michael keaton and was another example of him and tim burton creating something absolutely brilliant Um, but I'm not here to discuss Beetlejuice, I'm here to discuss Batman. Um, this version of Batman has been active for some time as Batman, um, even by the time we meet him in the first film. Um, but he's just sort of starting to make his presence really known, especially on the crime families of Gotham. Um... I will say, though, that I think in both of these films, Michael Keaton does tend to get overshadowed um, by the villains of the piece. Jack Nicholson playing the Joker in the 1989 Batman film, for example, is this incredible tour de force um, for the character where and the actor, where he is just having such a good time that he just steals so much screen presence from Michael Keaton, even in scenes that they share together. And that's not to say there aren't memorable moments with the two of them. There there really are. And Michael Keaton has a share of memorable moments throughout these two films. But with both Jack Nicholson's Joker and then in the second film with uh, Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman and Danny DeVito's Penguin, both of them do manage to overshadow him to a certain extent. Um, So while the film is about Batman, the film becomes more about the villains and their stories rather than Batman himself, in a way. And I'm not sure that's necessarily for the best for the film. Um, They are good films. They're very interesting films. Um, And they, like I said, they do hold up as films. If you're a fan of Tim Burton, um, then these films are pretty much essential. If you're a fan of Batman, these films are pretty much essential. If you're a fan of comic book films in general, I'd say these two films are pretty much essential, especially the first one. Um, but again, Batman Returns still has a lot of fun in it as well. Um, have they always aged the best? No, definitely not. There are some elements of them that are silly. Um, you know, the the first film has a very heavy soundtrack by Prince. Um, you know, so you've got this this older gangster in clown makeup running around dancing to Prince, uh, and it's bizarre. <laughs> it's very bizarre. Um, or you know the you know some of the scenes with Penguin um, where he's he's discussing how much he wants to have sex with Catwoman. Um, you know he's getting properly thirsty for Catwoman um and it's it's kind of repugnant uh, but deli- uh, deliberately so i do think it was designed to feel that way on the part of the filmmakers um and so yeah they they haven't always aged brilliantly at all but they are good they you know they're still f- a fun watch but let's have a look at how well michael keaton's batman adapts Batman, shall we? Um, Physicality. Um, This version of Batman is able to beat a multitude of opponents in combat, um, including people far larger than him. However, a lot of the times he does fight people one-on-one, and due to the limitations of the suit, the 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 rubber cowl and cape, and it's sort of connected to the torso piece, which is like again leather and rubber, and you get the feeling that Michael Keaton can't really move very well in it his 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 neck and torso are kind of all in a line, very straight um and it does limit his movement um and so. You know, due to those limitations of filmmaking, he comes across more as a brawler rather than a a martial artist. Um, You know, he takes people down quite simply with very simple moves. Um, But it's impressive enough for what it is. The stealthiness and the voice disguise are maintained, though. He does sneak up on people and sneak away as well. Um, But then he also does show pain he can show you know he doesn't have the pain tolerance of the comic version of batman or some of the other batman that we'll speak about he he can get severely hurt um nothing ever lasting as an injury um but you know he does he does get hurt in in battle capability he's got a rather modest list of gadgets um Really quite modest. Um, I think part of that is budgetary. Um, we see him with the, the standard grapple line. We see him use the cape as, to sort of glide around. Um, we do see the Batwing and the Batmobile and the Batboat. Uh, he uses a, a Batboat to try and go through the tunnels in Batman Returns. Most of them, the Batboat and the Batwing are generally given like a scene to to show off. Um, and then they're destroyed or not mentioned again. Um, there is one very, very cool scene where he armors himself using a, uh, a stainless steel tea tray um, under his shirt as Bruce Wayne, knowing that he's going to get shot by Joker. So, yeah, he armors himself to survive the shot. Which I thought was very, very cool, and that shows a level of um, Batman's capability um and Batman's planning um he is quite stealthy, he's also capable of physical feats while moving around you know he, we see him you know pick people up, throw people um. But you seem to do a lot of the, also the the motion, um, you know, the gliding, the the catching his fall, things like that. Intellectualism um, for me, Michael Keaton has one of the most intellectual moments as Batman um, in of any of the cinematic Batman. Um, it's him that deduces the chemical combinations used by the Joker, which are killing people across Gotham. Um, goth uh, Joker is um, you know, contaminated a whole load of different cosmetics, and it's the mixture of which types of cosmetics which cause people to kill. Batman is the one who works that out, and I like that. I like that that intellectualism is there because that is Batman being a detective and being a scientist like he should be. Um, At one point in Batman Returns, Penguin manages to take control of the Batmobile, and Batman doesn't panic, and he overrides Penguin's signal himself very quickly, um, just within the Batmobile, while trapped inside the Batmobile, um, and he does manage to free the Batmobile from Penguin's control, um... He also overrides Penguin's signal to his penguins when he's sending them up with missiles. Um, because, yeah, these movies get silly. There's some bizarre leaps in logic and stuff. Because somehow Penguin got hold of a whole, not only a whole army of penguins, but also, you know, military grade missiles. Um, he also learns about. Penguin's link to the Red Circus gang and figures out that Max Shrek, who is someone he already distrusts um, due to engaging with him as Bruce Wayne, um, might be a part of it. And there's a very good scene in Batman Returns where he and Selina, Selina Kyle, Catwoman, figure out each other's identities. And it's very, very well done um very well shot as well very well shot very well acted on the part of the two of them um uh, Michelle Pfeiffer and um Michael Keaton they do a brilliant job um in terms of moral character um he does show compassion towards selina um he urges her not to kill max Shrek at the end of the film and batman returns Um, But he does himself show a desire to kill Joker, once learning that Joker was the one responsible for killing his parents. Um, In fact, it's an altercation between himself and Joker that does lead to Joker's death. And he doesn't really seem to do much to stop it. Um, You know, Joker falls to his death um, and Batman prioritizes saving Vicky rather than the Joker um he also kills several goons um you know he throws one guy down a bell tower in batman he um puts a bomb on another guy and throws him down a a tunnel into the underground and he blows up and just generally he seems really indifferent to death around him um You know, he seems pretty indifferent to the deaths of Penguin and Max Shrek, Christopher Walken's character in uh, Batman Returns, who's like an industrialist who's sponsoring the Penguin. Um, And he does seem moved by Penguin at first, before immediately suspecting him. So it's like... He seems somewhat moved by Penguin's first appearance on the news. But then the very next scene, he's immediately investigating Penguin's link to the Red Circus gang. So, it's like, was he actually moved or was he making an excuse to Alfred? It's kind of hard to tell. Um, Trauma, though. This is one of the first times Batman trauma is really represented. Um, He... You know he is traumatized. he confronts the trauma of his losing his parents uh and sort of relives it when he learns that um Joker was the one responsible for their death um you know his mission, his relationship with Vicky Vale um in between the first and second films actually broke down um because of his mission as Batman, so he 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 says he makes a line in Batman Returns where he says he couldn't stop being Batman. Um, and we see that he has this difficulty growing close to people, but he still tries to pursue relationships with Vicky and Selena anyway. So his trauma obviously isn't as pronounced as it is in some other places. Um, you know, the biggest area it plays a large part is when he learns the truth about Joker. Joker being the one to kill his parents. Um, you know, Joker uses a line, um... That have you ever danced with the uh, the devil in the pale moonlight um that he uses just before he shoots his parents and he uses the same line on Bruce before he shoots him and that's how Bruce realizes and it kind of it knocks him for six and we see it really affect him so yeah it's it's a good one I think he he as you can tell. I'm quite fond of this depiction of Batman. Um some areas I think it will rank quite low, but in terms of intellectualism and trauma, this is one of the the best depictions of Batman for me. And like I said, I'll get to the full totals at the end, but yeah, you can already see where Michael Keaton the Batman might score highly. Now we come to our first animated depiction of Batman, which is Kevin Conroy. Uh, Kevin Conroy is most well-known as the voice actor from Batman the Animated Series. He reprised the role as Batman several times, including in the other shows connected to Batman the Animated Series and the DC Animated Universe, which is uh, Justice League, Justice League Unlimited, Batman Beyond, Um, He also then reprised the role for several games, including the Batman Arkham series, um, as well as Injustice um, from NetherRealm Studios. Now, obviously, he, to a lot of people, is one of the definitive Batman. And I'd have to agree, Batman the Animated Series is quite possibly, you know, one of my favourite depictions of the character... Um, ...as is probably the Batman Arkham series. Um, And... ...you know, Kevin Conroy's idea of Batman, his take on Batman... ...is something I like quite a lot. However, here, just as with Adam West, I am not judging the TV show. I am only judging his role in the animated movie Batman Mask of the Phantasm which released in 1993. Now, Mask of the Phantasm is animated and styled very, very much like the Batman animated TV show. The sort of the gothic noir style, the colours on black paper rather than white um, to create these, these dark and foreboding backgrounds that use shadow um, quite heavily. And it's a good film. I It does feel very much just like a, an extended version of the animated series. It's it's a good story in and of itself, but I don't think it needed to be a film. Uh, and apparently the decision to actually release it as a film came very, very late into production. It was originally going to be a, a, a TV movie. And in fact the, the DC animated movies did get several the DC Animated Universe did get several other TV movies later on, um, including Batman Beyond Return of the Joker, which is quite possibly the best one in my opinion. Um and then obviously DC have done many, many animated movies recently, some of which are in their own continuity and adapting um storylines from the comics, uh of which Batman has appeared in a lot of them. Um sometimes voiced by even by Kevin Conroy. Um, and you know, those have adapted other Batman stories from recent years, such as Hush, Under the Red Hood, um, even Elseworld stories like Gotham by Gaslight. And they're all they're all pretty good. Uh Kevin Conroy has even actually played a live-action version of Batman in the Arrowverse Crisis on Infinite Earths, um, where he played the almost the Dark Knight Returns version of Batman, although physically he was based more on the Kingdom Come iteration of Batman. Um, You know, where he was on a parallel Earth, and we found out that he'd killed Superman and several other heroes. It was a very dark depiction that a lot of people were not very happy with. I... I was just happy to see Kevin Conroy play Bruce Wayne again, to be honest. Um, But yes, I'm going to judge him for his role in Mask of the Phantasm. Mask of the Phantasm features um, a look at Batman's early origins in this universe and how he first tries to fight crime, um, how he explored a romantic relationship with Andrea Beaumont um, before she had to leave Gotham forever. Um, due to her father being involved in a criminal conspiracy um, with the Valeska gang, uh, not Valeska. Sorry, that's Gotham. Velestra. Um, and then in the modern day, um, as Andrea Bone returns, a character, a vigilante known as the Phantasm, starts killing off members of the Velestra gang. And Valestra, um trying to keep himself safe, trying to believing that it's Batman who is killing them off, um, hires the Joker to stop him. It's an interesting film. I'm gonna put it that way. It's very good for what it is. Um and like I said, it's a good story for Batman and the Joker, and a very, very good story for the origins of Batman. Um but it's not necessarily a great film. I do think it's worth a watch, definitely. Uh, Especially if you're a fan of the animated series. But... and In terms of a character study of Batman, it's very, very good. But it doesn't have the... um, the bombast of a lot of the other films. And I think... I think as a story... While it's very good, it's not quite as intricately woven as some of the other stories featuring Batman as films. And I think a lot of people that like it may be looking at it with nostalgia goggles. I don't know, it might be just because I only saw it recently for the first time, I don't know. But, yeah, it's, it's still good. But let's get into judging him as Batman in this movie. Um... Physicality, um, this Batman is quite physically capable. Even in the flashbacks, he fights off a whole horde of goons all by himself. Um, but for the most part of the film, he doesn't really get given a chance to do anything. There's one scene where he's evading the police and kind of just barely evading them. Um, you know, as they're hunting him down, um... At one point he manages to chase after the Joker who's trying to escape on a jetpack and manages to land on the Joker and bring him down. And he does seem to withstand the physical punishment he receives. Like he gets um trapped on some rubble, he falls quite badly, he ends up cut and bruised and um, you know, he's standing and kind of holding himself in pain, but he's he's surviving and he's not, you know, except for a brief scream of pain when he's first cut, he doesn't really react to it. Capability wise, he doesn't really use any gadgets. I don't think he even uses the Batmobile throughout the film. Um, however, like I say, he does manage to, to defeat Joker and bring him down from his jet pack, um, which is impressive on its own. Um, but beyond any other physical uh, capability, he doesn't really have any. Um, so obviously he's going to score quite low there. Intellectually, there are, there's a lot of Batman being a detective in this version. Um, there's scenes while he's investigating the murders. He discovers the link to the Bowman family, specifically Andre's father. Um, and the Valestra gang, he deduces, um, Joker's identity as part of the Valestra mob. It turns out the Joker used to be the Valestra's driver. Um, and he was responsible for killing off, um, Andrew's father. I've forgotten his name, Claude, I want to say. Might not be right. Um... His divide between Bruce and Batman is a key part of his flashbacks um, where he's trying to build his persona as Batman and trying to train for his crusade against crime Um, but while also falling in love with Andrea and trying to explore that. Um, And that then also plays a part in his in one of the other tenants, which i will get to in a minute. He does also play the part of Bruce at a fundraiser, um, including getting uh, doused with a drink from a, a jilted ex-lover, um, which was quite funny. He seems to be very much well aware of his role uh, in high society of Gotham and the good it can do. In terms of his moral character... He tries to talk Andrea down once he learns the truth that she is actually the phantasm uh even trying to talk her down against Joker um wanting to help her. he also actively avoids hurting the police when they're pursuing him um you know they're coming after him with guns, and he tries to avoid hurting them even to incapacitate them um you know he tries to dodge them rather than fight them um despite the fact he could trauma though the the biggest part of the trauma is explored is in the uh flashbacks for the film um his romance with andrea causes a conflict in his desire to become batman in the beginning it makes him feel like he's letting his parents down like he's turning his back on the promise that he made on their grave. And we really see him struggling with it. And he only really embraces his role as Batman after Andrea leaves him. Um, you know, he's still sort of active and trying to be Batman. But he does feel a real conflict over his love for Andrea. And... Um, And that's kind of explored again in the modern day when she learns and realises that he is Batman um, once she's come back. Which is... Yeah, it's interesting. I think... Mask of the Phantasm, as good as it is, is not the best depiction of... Kevin Conroy's Batman. Um... Or the, the animated series version of Batman. Um, you know, he... This version of Batman is capable of so much more that makes him a much better adaptation overall. And yet in this movie, he's just kind of... middle of the road with everything. Nothing really stands out. Um, you know, he doesn't really excel in any area. Now, that might mean that when I overall weight the scores, he might come up quite high. I don't know. know, Compared to some of the others that have been high in one area but really low in another, being middle of the road might balance out as a pretty good adaptation. But I do think the character is better elsewhere. Batman Forever is a film that a lot of people have decided to dunk-on in recent years, Um, mainly sort of off the back of the poor um, reception, critical and audience of Batman and Robin, which was also directed by, also featured the same team involved, Um, especially director Joel Schumacher. And Batman Forever gets kind of lumped in with Batman and Robin as being, uh, oh, it's it's terrible. And look how much better the, the the Christopher Nolan films were afterwards when they they got rid of the campy elements. And I don't think it's fair. Batman Forever is a good film, and I will die on that hill. Uh, I think it is a very good film. It was one of the best-received films in the year it came out, which was 1995, a year which featured strong competition. Uh, You know, Die Hard with a Vengeance was released that year. Toy Story was released that year. Uh, Apollo 13, Braveheart, you know, were all big films at that time. You know, those, those were the ones sweeping the Oscars, Apollo 13 and Braveheart. And yet... Batman Forever has the highest box office in North America for that year. You know, it had a higher box office than Apollo uh, Apollo 13. It had a higher box office than GoldenEye. It had a higher box office than Seven. It had a higher box office than Casper. You know, all these films, or Jumanji as well. All these films that were kind of more beloved throughout the years and... Uh, You know, Batman Forever beat them in North America. Worldwide, some of those other films did a lot better, which means in terms of the worldwide rankings, Batman Forever sits sixth in the top ten. You know, Die Hard with a Vengeance, Toy Story, Apollo 13, GoldenEye and Pocahontas all beat it in worldwide grossings. But for North America, it was the most successful film of the year. And I think it earned it. It was a good film i really enjoy batman forever um it's technically the third installment of the uh, film series that began with 1989's batman um however val kilmer replaces michael keaton as batman um alongside tommy lee jones as two-face jim carrey as the riddler Nicole Kidman as a psychologist, Dr. Chase Meridian. And Chris O'Donnell as Dick Grayson, who becomes Robin by the end of the film. Joel Schumacher, the director, is a very interesting filmmaker. I think that's the best thing that anyone can level against Joel Schumacher. All of his films are interesting. They are Definitely something to experience. Um, He was a film director, screenwriter, producer. He also graduated from the Parsons School of Design, became a fashion designer. Uh, He originally entered filmmaking as a production and costume designer before gaining writing credits. And he has a bizarre filmography. He has... Things on there like St. Elmo's Fire, The Lost Boys, The Client, uh, Phone Booth, um, The Phantom of the Opera. And it's like, some of these films are, you know, critically beloved. And then some of them are panned and despised. um, Including Batman and Robin is subsequent Batman film. And Phantom of the Opera. But I don't think you can ever be bored watching something that Joel Schumacher has directed. He is definitely a good filmmaker. Um, You know, even something like Batman and Robin, which I'll get to in a bit. um, You know, you can be entertained despite how bad it can be. Now, this version of Batman is, you know, Schumacher kind of went away from the dark dystopian atmosphere that was in Burton's films, and made Gotham a lot more vibrant. Um, there's a lot of neon lights, um, for example, in Gotham. It gets a lot better, a lot, a lot more, and a lot more egregious in the next film. Um, but it's still part of Batman Forever. Um, but at the same time, he also tries to focus on more of a a character study of Batman. Um, there were several major edits to the film before its release, and originally it was much darker than the final product for Batman Forever. Um, like, apparently, Gordon Schumacher, the original cut was around two hours, 40 minutes. So there's about 40 minutes cut from this film um, that has never been released. There's been bits of it seen, bits of these deleted scenes seen, um, you know, but there's there's quite often been talk of an extended cut, especially recently off the back of uh, Schumacher's passing last year. And... Um, the successful release of Zack Snyder's Justice League. So, yeah, I'd be interested to see this his cut of the movie because apparently it does still exist. Like people who worked with him on this movie have said, "Yeah, this cut exists." Um, unlike Zack Snyder's cut, which needed work, like this cut exists. It's it's a it's a, it's a print cut. It was shown to test audiences. It exists, and. Yeah. A lot of the um deleted scenes, as well as adding a more serious tone, um, put a lot more focus on Batman's psychological issues. Um, you know, Bat having a Bruce having a vision of a, a human-sized bat at one point and discussing his his own mental health and his trauma with Chase Meridian. Um but, you know, a lot of this was cut, unfortunately. And we might never see it. I really hope we will at some point. But uh, I have to judge the the movie that was actually released, Batman Forever. And as I said, I really enjoy this movie. Um, you know, it's campy and silly. Tommy Lee Jones once uh, criticised Jim Carrey while they were filming it of... Uh, Saying, I cannot sanction your buffoonery. Or something along those lines. Um, You know, because they, they, they are... The machine that Riddler has created is able to suck intelligence from people. And he's connected it to everyone's television. So every family has one. And he is using that intelligence to grow smarter. And in doing that, learns who Batman is. Which is what he wants so that he can, you know, him and uh, Two-Face can kill Batman. And throughout this, we also have uh, Batman teaching and mentoring um, Dick Grayson, who has lost his own uh, parents um, in an attack on the circus caused by Two-Face. It's a good story. Batman feels very conflicted. The film feels a bit unsure of itself at times because some of that that extra content is taken away. And again, there's a lot more focus on the villains and Robin than there is on Batman himself. But this version of Batman while supposedly a sequel to the Michael Keaton version has his own unique quirks which I think make him Worth exploring. Now, so I'm going to go through the tenants again. Uh, Physicality. Um, There are multiple scenes in this where Batman takes down Two-Face's thugs in large numbers. And, you know, they, they rush him and he will take them multiple down at a time. Val Kilmer, I've seen quite often criticised as being a very poor Bruce Wayne. I don't think he is. He's very soft-spoken as Bruce, and this is the first time we really see Bruce Wayne being involved in the the day-to-day runnings of Wayne Enterprises, which in the films up until now has not been part of the story. It was part of the animated series, which has now made its way to this, the films. Um... He gets injured several times, but only seems to address those injuries once he's safely back at the Batcave. Um He's not often given a chance to be stealthy, except perhaps at the circus, when he launches into trying to launches into action there without a second thought to try and fight Two Faces goons and uh, save the day. Um And he's only really given the chance to be stealthy there because there's too much noise. There's a, a cacophony of noise due to the crowd panicking. Um, in terms of his capability, there's he uses an experimental new suit in the climax of the film, which has a gadget designed around sonar, which he's able to use to, um, uh, to damage the Riddler's machine um, to try and take him down. Beyond that, he also has a device that protects him from fire using like a lining in the cape. He uses uh, a, a bit of dodgy CGI to do it, but yeah, he survives a firestorm um wrapping himself in the cape and pressing a button on his gauntlet. Um it's unclear how, but he does. Um he does also have the Batmobile, which gets destroyed, um, and as well as the Batwing and the Batboat, uh, which again also both get destroyed in terms of intellectual intellectualism um he does decipher enigmas riddles although they are pretty simple riddles like with a bit of thought i think most people could deduce them um i think part of that is because this film was also aimed at kids there was extensive tie-ins with things like mcdonald's and stuff like that to to try and bring back a kid audience that had been kind of lost with batman forever getting a more mature rating um But he does use the link between the riddles of them all containing a number and that perhaps referencing an alphanumeric cipher um, to deduce Nick, uh, Edward Nygma's identity as the Riddler, which is interesting. Uh, it's you know it's it's a more sudden announcement, but it's not quite the leap of logic that you got in the sixties where it's like trying to decipher some riddles, riddler's puzzles in that was bizarre. Um, He also shows a knowledge of psychology, Um, you know, in his discussions with Chase, he said he's read Chase's work and offers some brief insights on it. And so you never doubt that he means what he says when he says he's read her work. Morally, um, he shows compassion and a desire to help Dick after Dick loses his family. Um, He does also try to give himself up to Two-Face to save everyone in the circus, but can't be heard over the crowd. Um, He saves both Chase and Robin at the end of the film. Uh, Riddler has captured both of them and offers... Says to Batman he can only save one. Because, you know, do you do you save... You know, your Link as Bruce Wayne... Or your Link as Batman. And, you know, he saves them both. Um, he never directly kills any goons in this. But he does quite possibly allow them to die. At least I don't remember him killing any goons. Um, but there's one point where there's a multi-car pile-up... An explosion... Um, so it's clear he 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 leaves them to die, but he doesn't directly kill them. Um, however, that is undercut by him actually killing Two-Face in the end. Uh, Two-Face tosses his coin uh, after being reminded by Batman. Uh, he has a, a coin that is is a two-headed dollar, and one head of the dollar is scarred. Um, and he tosses the coin to decide whether people live or die. So Two-Face tosses the coin... And then Batman throws a whole load of other silver dollars up into the air um, for Two-Face to try and catch. uh, Which causes him to lose his footing and fall to his death. And That is my least favourite thing in the whole film. You know, were it not for that, this would be one of my favourite depictions of Batman. But that, using using the coin, using Two-Face's own psychological weakness, which he acknowledged he understood earlier in the film, to then kill Two-Face. Oh, I don't like that. And it's murder. And it is straight-up murder. I do not like it. um, Especially because earlier, discussing trauma now, he does show some guilt for Two-Face's condition earlier in the film. Like, Two-Face gets... Uh, acid thrown in his face by Maroni while Maroni is on the dock, and Batman tries to save him and is unsuccessful. Um, however, trauma is also where this film delves quite deeply. Um, as I said, there was more of a plan to use it, but what's still in the film is is still pretty strong. We see Batman still being plagued by nightmares, um, which is a plot point. You know, that's how Riddler and Two-Face deduces identity by learning that he is plagued of nightmares of a giant bat. Um, we also see that he's moved by the Grayson's death and, you know, he's recognized as still processing the psychological effects of his parents' death by chase, you know, by a medical professional. She says, you know, you're still not over this. um, I think had the deleted content remained in the film, this element would be a lot stronger than it is. But it's pretty strong as it is already. It could have done with maybe a bit more of an exploration of it. Um, but I think what is there is is strong enough. And it's a stronger depiction than some of the previous ones I've spoken about have had. So yeah, for me, Val Kilmer is one of my favourite Batman. You know, it helped that I also like the film Batman Forever. And I really do. I really do. I really like Batman Forever. I really like Val Kilmer as this character. And I think the depiction of the character here by Val Kilmer and Joel Schumacher works really well. Now, as I said, Batman and Robin was very successful. And it led uh, DC and Warner Brothers to fast-track... Um, a sequel, um, which was Batman and Robin. Batman and Robin is technically the fourth film in the same series of Batman films, and it was the first, and thus the only one, made without the involvement of Tim Burton in any capacity. Uh, Tim Burton was an executive producer on Batman Forever. He was absent for Batman and Robin. Um... The film itself, uh, there were several cast and crew changes. It's uh, directed by Joel Schumacher, written by Akiva Goldsman, who is, um, you know, quite a, a popular name. You know, in geek circles, he was heavily involved in the films for I Am Robot, I Am Legend, uh, the television series Fringe, um the adaptation of The Da Vinci Code, and in more modern times, he's been involved quite heavily on the DC series Titans and Star Trek Picard. So, yeah, very famous writer involved in geek circles. So, what happened with Batman and Robin? How did we go from... You know, three very successful Batman films to a movie generally considered one of the worst films ever made. (laughs) Well, I'm not sure exactly. I think a big part of it may be the decision to embrace a lot of the more campy Batman elements. Batman and Robin feels like it would fit in perfectly in the world of the 60s show. Despite being a more modern Batman offering, it feels like it would fit in perfectly with that show. Um, George Clooney plays Batman, Chris O'Donnell returns as Robin. Um, Val Kilmer had to step down due to uh, shooting conflicts with uh, scheduling conflicts with the Saint. Arnold Schwarzenegger plays Mr. Freeze and um, Uma Thurman um, plays Poison Ivy as the two main villains. Uh, We also get Alicia Silverstone joining the cast as Batwoman in what is so far her only live action film appearance. Ever. Um, You know, she's been in an animated film, which I'll come to in a bit, um, but her only live action appearance is in this film. It also features the villain Bane, played by a wrestler, uh, Robert Swenson, also known as Jeep, who also tragically died um, two months after the film's release of Heart Failure, which is quite sad. I remember seeing an interview with him in the lead-up to the film's release, saying how proud he was of it uh, and his role in it. you know, he was a, more of a comic book fan, I believe. So, yeah, it's a bit of a shame that not only was it critically savaged, he then died not long afterwards. Um, but alas, these are the things that happen. Um, the film itself is is bizarre and dumb, and it's very, very campy. There, There is some really good stuff in here. There are some great um elements of Robin trying to break out from Batman's shadow and trying to learn to be trusted on his own right and you know, sort of rebelling against Batman and his influence. But then at the same time it's like Mr. Freeze is motivated to by his wife's illness and her existence in cryosleep. But then at the same time he's running around making ice puns. A lot of ice puns. So many ice puns. Um, and him and... He and Poison Ivy come up with a plan to uh, eradicate humanity... And replace them with plant hybrids that she's created. It's... It's so bizarre. Things just seem to happen from nowhere. Like, you know, Poison Ivy is working... You know, as Pamela Isley is working to try and create hybrids between snakes and plants because of course she is in a you know supposedly abandoned and shut down government project that exists in the jungles of South America because of course she is it's yeah it just feels like a camp 60s batman plot like this would work so would have worked so well as a plot line in the original batman ser- series in the 60s And it would have worked really well without needing to explain it. Uh, It just means a lot of the things in the actual final film feel undercooked or underbaked. But saying that, you know, and that means that everyone involved with this film has been kind of negatively tarnished as a result of it. Like, you know, George Clooney, who took over the role as Batman is often regarded as the worst Batman actor, partially for the quality of this film, rightly or wrongly. And I I don't think he gives a bad performance. I don't think anyone in this film gives a bad performance. I think they were doing exactly what they were told to do by the directors and the producers, and exactly what they were hired to do, and exactly what the script said to do. It's just that what they're doing doesn't always work. (laughs) Um, One thing the film is very often criticised as well for is the design of the Batman suit. Um, I believe it was the previous film, Batman Forever, that added nipples to the Batsuit. I should add that Joel Schumacher is also an out-gay man. Whether that influenced his decision, I don't know. Um but this film also features multiple suit-ups of the characters focusing on things like butts and bulges and chests. And a lot of people found that very, very uncomfortable. Personally, to me, um, my wife Tallulah, when we were re-watching it recently, pointed out, and I actually agree with this statement, that the, the shots that we get given of those are very much male-gay shots, i.e. those are the sort of shots that we get in comics of female heroes all the time. You know, the kind of the leering, oh, look at them, aren't they sexy, shots, that we see on female heroes all the time, and that it makes modern audiences uncomfortable because those shots are on men. And most of the straight male audience doesn't know how to process that. And I kind of agree with that. Personally, I don't mind it. Chris O'Donnell and George Clooney are both very sexy men. Um, but I think, as well, for most of these shots, it was probably body doubles. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, the shots work for what they are, for me. Um And I think when you look at them with that lens, when you look at the whole film with that lens of, you know, this is the male gaze kind of hero worship thing of these heroes, some bits do start to slot into place. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I do think there are positives in this film and I do think you can be very entertained watching this film as I said, but I don't think it's necessarily a good film. But the question here is not how good of it a film is it. The question is how good of an adaptation of Batman is it? So physicality. George Clooney's Batman is shown to be very physically capable. Um, For example, there's one early scene where he and Robin both deploy skates uh, ice skates and are skating effortlessly with the skill of like hockey players, um, even even fighting on the ice um, with goons within minutes of encountering freeze. Um, and that is very impressive. Um, you know, I, I say this not just to someone who can't ice skate, but ice skating is hard. It, it does require a certain skill that not everyone can can do, especially with that confidence on the ice that Batman and Robin seem to have in this. And it's like I've you know I can see I've seen multiple people skating, you know, um, every year uh, at winter events, despite it not being something I can do myself. I know people can do it. But to do it with the capability that George Clooney's Batman is doing it, where he's not just skating effortlessly, but he's also fighting people while skating. You know, um, you know, that's something athletes do. Ice, ho- ice hockey is an athletic sport, you know, for this reason. And that's essentially what they're doing. Um, there's also a scene later on in the film where he does manage to overpower Bane Uh, and defeat him physically, um, despite Bane being shown to be able to punch through brick walls. Um, He does, however, make no attempt to disguise his voice. like George Clooney's voice is the same voice as Batman and Bruce Wayne in this film. Capability. There are multiple new machines and suits for Batman, Robin, and Batgirl... In the final act. Like these the they the ju- they're just given brand new machines that work on ice. And they each get one. <laughs> and it's so bizarre. Because it's like, when were these built? How <laughs> how long have they been sitting in the Batcave? Have they been waiting for a perfect winter event? Um and yeah, it's just bizarre. Um they also have weapons um such as lasers, which they use to melt ice. Uh, And gadgets, such as the skates, highlighting the idea of a gadget for everything, which is something that goes back to the comics. Batman has something in his utility belt for every purpose, and that's what these lasers and these skates highlight. And then that even gets taken to a really absurd extreme, when at one point they're bidding on Poison Ivy, and he pulls out a Batman credit card. You know... And it's absurd, but it works, and it highlights the the bizarre nature of Batman always being prepared for anything. Um, which you know, th- you know that's a meme. Batman being prepared for anything. Batman can win any fight. He's prepared for anything. All he needs is time and preparation. This Batman is prepared for anything, literally, from. You know, melting ice to skating to spending extreme amounts of money on a credit card. <sighs> Intellectually, um, Batman does work out he's being manipulated by Poison Ivy. That him and Robin are being manipulated by her due to her pheromones. And he has to try and convince Robin of that fact. Um, not always, he's not always successful in doing so, but he does have to try and convince Robin, and obviously, that's undercut with the fact that he's um previously in the film done things like switch off the Red Bird motorcycle to prevent Robin chasing Freeze, uh, in a dangerous stunt. He also learns Freeze's origins very quickly, um, after encountering him for the first time, but those are the real. Only real hints we see of any intellectual uh, superiority, any intellectualism in this version of Batman. Moral character, though, he does show sympathy for Freeze, and he's even able to convince Mr. Freeze to stand down and provide help, offers to provide help with his research Um, if Freeze stands down and uh, gives him the cure. Um, for the disease that he discovered, because we, as the film goes on, we learn that Alfred is dying of the same disease that has affected um, Nora, Mister Freeze's wife, and Mister Freeze has a cure for its early stages. And Batman gets that cure from Mister Freeze by talking to him, which is, it's brilliant. I love it um you know he ends this fight with this villain with a conversation that feels very very batman to me um he also gets drawn instantly to barbara when she arrives she's arrives in this not as uh, commissioner gordon's niece but as alfred's niece and he immediately offers that she can stay because she's family um although i did joke with um my wife and several other people on Facebook, that it does feel like as soon as Bruce hears that she's an orphan, he's like, oh, orphan? Uh, you, yeah, of course you could stay. Uh, what, what are your opinions on ninjas and leather? Uh, you know, are you are you interested in fighting crime? So, yeah, that does make me laugh. Um, He also shows his resolve by trying to talk Robin round. Um, you know, trying to talk Robin round to his way of thinking regarding poison ivy um especially and it's again it's, it's a batman who's trying to talk to his problem through his problems rather than just punch everything which i like um the trauma however does take a back seat um in this film. However, his drive to be Batman is affecting his relationship. We see that he's in a relationship with a character called Julie, um, played by Elle McPherson, and it's revealed that despite them being together for a year, he hasn't told her the truth that he is Batman. Um, And he seems reluctant to do that, and it's creating a growing divide between them. And in fact, his inability to trust... Leads to the divide between him and Robin. Um, as I said, he turns off the Redbird while Robin is insistent that he can chase uh, Mister Freeze. And so Batman turns off the Redbird, but then he pursues Freeze himself. Um, and it's a good part of the story. It does get resolved quite effortlessly by the uh, by the climax of the movie. Um, where the three of them all kind of come together as heroes uh, Bruce, Barbara and Dick but it's nice that they explored the, the trust issues aspect of his trauma um, in learning to work with Robin and I think that's one of the stronger elements of the film and it would have been nice if it had gotten maybe a bit more focus than it did in the final product Obviously, after Batman and Robin um, bombed, for lack of a better term, critically and commercially, um, DC and Warner Brothers reevaluated what they were going to do with the property. Um, Schumacher had a third film planned, which was going to feature Harley Quinn and Scarecrow, um, called Batman Unchained. Um, but obviously that. Never went into production. Um, Schumacher was fired. And there was a lot of... I'm in an aring ring about what to do for a while. Um, this was in sort of 1997. After Batman. 97, 98. And it was a lot of talk about, you know, can we do another Batman film? Should we rush into another one? Put another one into production? You know, there was a lot of talk about how how the critical reception for Batman and Robin would affect Warner Brothers. Um, if they were to do Batman again, there was even, um, a direct to video animated film, uh, Batman and Mr. Freeze sub zero, which again was part of the Batman, the animated series, but it was a, like I said, direct to video rather than a cinematic release that was due out around the same time as Batman and Robin and ended up being delayed. Um, and they were worried about how that was going to be received off the back of Batman and Robin's critical reception, despite the fact it was linked to the Batman and Rob uh, you know, the Batman animated series, which was critically successful, and it was featuring Mr. Freeze, the Mr. Freeze episodes of Batman and the Animated Series both won Emmys. You know? Um so that but they were worried about how Batman and Robin's own critical reception would affect that. And Fortunately, it didn't you know it got um it helped return Batman and mr. freeze to popularity but then they've obviously they decided to reboot the franchise the reboot finally got on the way when in two thousand and three Warner Brothers hired Christopher Nolan uh, most famous at the time for directing memento um to direct a new Batman film this was presumably as part of the the wave that we had in the early 2000s of brand new superhero films um you know off the back of um, X-Men at Fox and Spider-Man at Sony and uh, I think by this point we'd also had Hulk at Universal um Fantastic Four was on its way as well so you know it was it was a there was definitely money in it. it. It sort of proved X-Men and Spider-Man helped sort of prove that there was still money in these comic book properties if they were turned into good films. David S. Goya was hired as screenwriter, um, most famous for his work on the blade trilogy. And between them, uh, Goya and Nolan began work on what is quite arguably the most famous version of Batman in cultural consciousness. Um, especially in the modern era, um, which is the Dark Knight trilogy. Uh, Christian Bale was eventually hired as their Batman. And they wanted to go for a a reboot of the franchise. You know, they wanted a, a darker, more realistic tone. Making sure everything worked in a realistic way. Um, you know... For example, building a real Batmobile that worked and drove around. Um, and yeah, the it led to the Dark Knight trilogy. Um, Batman Begins, The Dark Knight, and The Dark Knight Rises, released in 2005, 2008, and 2012, respectively. And they are very good films. Um I remember not liking The Dark Knight Rises much the first time I saw it. Um, but having re-watched it recently for this, it's a lot better than I remember, although I still have issues with it. Um, and The Dark Knight is quite rightly regarded as one of the best comic book movies, uh, you know, the best superhero movies in existence. It's a very good example of what the genre can do um because it's essentially a crime film just with superheroes involved it's very, very good I think the core cast are incredible um obviously you have Christian Bale as um Batman and Bruce Wayne uh, Michael Caine as Alfred um Gary Oldman as Commissioner Gordon um and Morgan Freeman as Lucius Fox as well in a recurring role throughout the three films. And then the other characters who come in for, for one or two movies, such as Tom Hardy's Bane, or Heath Ledger's Joker, or um, Maggie Hall's Rachel, um, Aaron Eckhart's Two-Face, um, you know, Harvey Dent Two-Face, they, all of them are brilliant, every Every one of these films is very good. And they each one of them builds on things that have come before. Um, so Batman Begins starts by telling something completely new. And then that leads straight into the Dark Knight. The Dark Knight builds on everything that came before. And then Dark Knight Rises completes the loop. And creates a very comprehensive trilogy. Um, I will admit though Christian Bale is not my favourite version of Batman in the cinema. Um, I have my issues with his Batman, uh, mainly due to his adaptation. So let's discuss his adaptation, shall we? Firstly, physicality. While while a strong and capable physical threat in these films, Batman does get injured. Um, you know, Bane, especially in the third film, has was a very strong physical threat that Batman struggled to overcome. In their battles. Um, I think they fight three times. um, Across the Dark Knight Rises. And Batman only gets a decisive victory. In one of them. um, Which is when he manages to damage Bane's mask. And overpower him. um, Before Talia comes and sticks a knife in his ribs. Um, You know the time before that. He ends up with his back broken. And the time after that. Um. Catwoman has to shoot Bane because Bane wins the fight. But, you know, it's still impressive. He takes down... We see him taking down thugs. We see him being incredibly stealthy. Um, He's very, very stealthy, you know, popping in from above to take out people. It's very clever. Um, Part of it, I think, is just better budget and better stunt work. Um that has improved the physicality for each of these Batmen as they've gone on. Um, you know, the suits are better. The stunt work is better. They're able to do more. They've got more budget for these things. Um, and I think that's one reason why Michael Keaton looks a bit rough in comparison, um, you know, when compared to someone like Christian Bale's Batman. Um, Batman, however, is not as resilient in this. He, Obviously, he gets crippled in the third film by having his back broken, but he's also injured long before that. He's got a damage in his knee, um, but he does recover both times and trains to his former high standard very quickly, which is incredibly impressive. Um, like even when he has his back repaired, but like uh, you know, he goes from being from walking with a cane and being like a lonely miser to being Batman ready very quickly and you know we see him performing as Batman so yeah that's an impressive physical feat um the character of Bruce as well this is the the best films for showing the clear distinction between Bruce and Batman uh, once he starts his crusade as Batman he very quickly um, shows... The difference between his Bruce Wayne and his Batman. And only a few people are aware of what Bruce Wayne is actually like. His childhood friend Rachel and Alfred. And that's pretty much it. Lucius Fox, maybe, once he enters the circle of trust. Um, and... Bruce's persona is very very devil may care very flamboyant very playboy and it works really well and there are some amazing scenes where it's like you know he he's aware of what he needs how he needs to act as bruce so that no one ever links bruce and batman especially when the two of them arrived back into gotham at around the same time he doesn't want that link between them and it works really well and I think he does a very, very good job of illustrating the difference between these two characters. And that's a part of that's thanks to not just Christian Bale's acting, but also the part of the filmmakers, the scripting, the directing. They do a very, very good job. Capability. Um a lot of Batman's gadgets in this are provided by Lucius Fox rather than being his own creations. So they tend to be things that were created by Wayne Enterprises. Now that does fit with Batman um, having access to Wayne Enterprises, having access to a whole company, and being able to take a bit of this and a bit of this and repurpose it. Um, and generally, that works quite well. Like when we see him build his, when we see him build his suit in the first film, Batman Begins, he he literally does make the suit out of. selection of different bits that he orders from all around the world and some bits he takes from wayne enterprises and you know a bit of this and a bit of that and combines them all together to create the bat. and i think it works really well that the bat suit is created out of these separate component pieces so that no one will really connect the dots um, and he does also repurpose other ideas like the sonar um, is introduced in the dark Knight quite early on as something that Lucius Fox is using to um, get to the building where Lau is. And that's how Batman maps the building so that he can capture Lao later on. Um, and then we get to the end of the film and Batman has used the same sonar technology to Create like a virtual map of Gotham, um, which for Lucius crosses a moral line as well, which I'll come to in a minute. Um, but it's all done to stop Joker, and it's Bruce's put that into motion and taken that away from Lucius so that he can use it, um, which is clever. He's also shown to be able to work abroad. Um, like I said, when he does go to Hong Kong and to capture Lao, he uses a, a skyhook plane and, you know, all these intricate ideas to allow Batman to work extra-nationally. Um, and he even manages to come up with a really convincing cover story as Bruce Wayne. Like, he hires the yacht, takes Alfred out with the Russian ballet, and then has a seaplane pick him up from the yacht, and then take him back there, presumably. Um, which is very, very clever. Um, it does make you wonder how how much some of these other people knew. <laughs> you know, how much does this pilot know who picked him up on the seaplane? How much do the, the, the people on the skyhook know? And uh, things like that. Um, Batman even has a tool that helps him to overcome the physical deterioration in his knee. He has like a harness that he wears in The Dark Knight Returns, which enhances his leg. And uh, enhances the strength in that leg as well. Um, and that, again, sort of comes into the idea of a, a, a gadget for everything. Some examples of the machines maybe strain credibility. I think that's because the world of these films is so grounded. That, for example, having a machine that can scan a bullet embedded in a brick to get a fingerprint from it, for example is straining credibility. So is the sonar tech in the phones. But you can't deny that they they make him one of the more capable Batman in terms of what he is able to do. In terms of intellectualism, um, he's shown as intelligent, definitely. Um, He's got technical knowledge, such as uh, fixing the autopilot, such as creating the sonar device. Um, deducing how Selina managed to get his fingerprints off of the safe, but he does seem to lack the planning skills of some of the other versions. Um, he gets shocked and manipulated into certain actions and beliefs, um, by characters who are just outsmarting him. Um, you know, Ra's al Ghul, Bane, Selina Kyle, Talia al Ghul they all manage to get the upper hand on him or make him believe something and then get the drop on him. Um, which, um, you know, makes him one of the weaker Batman in, in that regard. Um, he also struggles with Joker's unpredictability. Um, like, as if he can't find his way around Joker's rational thought, you know, irrational thoughts. Uh, like, he's he's thinking too logically for to deal with Joker. Which, I think, fits. I think a lot of people would struggle with Joker, but... I don't know. In the comics, Batman can outthink the Joker. Um, Bruce... He also can't lie, convincingly. Like, he comes up with these cover stories. Um you know, really weak cover stories in the first film especially and you know, tells them to Lucius and Lucius eventually realizes and says, Look, you don't have to tell me what you what you're doing, but don't try and lie to me. I'm too intelligent for that. And I think that's because he just cannot lie convincingly to Lucius Fox. Um which again is is a weak depiction, because Batman can lie. He doesn't like to, but he can lie quite effectively. He has a whole identity of Matches Malone in certain comics that can work undercover in the mob. You know, Bruce shouldn't be outthought that easily. Moral character. Um, like I said, first of all there's the, the spying on everyone. Um, Yes, it's done in the name of security to trap the Joker, but it's still, he spies on the whole city. And Lucius highlights that this is a bad thing. Um, Bruce himself in Batman Begins also plans to kill Joe Chill. Like, he turns up to the courts with a gun to wait for Joe Chill to get out so that he can shoot him. The only reason he doesn't is because someone else shoots Joe Chill first. Joe Chill, for those who don't know, is the person who killed Thomas and Martha Wayne in this continuity. In in many continuities, in fact. And, you know, that Bruce planning a murder like that doesn't sit well with me. Um, And then also, you know, they then try and highlight later on in the film that when he's with the League of Shadows, he comes to realise that he can't take life. You know, he gets called out by Rachel um, for planning to kill Joe Chill. And it comes back later on that, you know, he can't take a life. You know, he even saves Joker from dying in the Dark Knight and Joker calls him out on it. And, you know, he echoes it in Dark Knight Rises where he says to Selena, no guns, no killing. He actually says those exact words. But despite all that, he does kill several times. Um most notably he leaves Raz and his crew to die and he says, I'm not gonna kill you, but I don't have to save you. That's still murder. Like he still killed them, he still let them die. Um And then in Dark Knight The Dark Knight, he tackles Harvey to death. Like he tackles Harvey and pushes him over a over a ravine into a into like a ditch behind these abandoned Derelict houses, or wherever it is they are, um, it's the it's the warehouse, isn't it? That was exploded earlier in the film where Rachel died, and he, he pushes him over the over the edge, and obviously Harvey dies, but Bruce killed him. So yeah, Two Face has no luck. He's, he's two for two in terms of uh, being killed by Batman in adaptations. In terms of trauma. Um, his trauma in this motivates him to become Batman. But his love for Rachel convinces him that he can step away from being Batman. Which suggests that he doesn't see his crusade in the same manner as other versions. He doesn't see it as something that he has to do. He feels it's something he can walk away from. Which is one of the biggest issues I have with the character. Um, and in fact he does step away Twice. Um, There's an eight year time gap because this is technically one of the longest Batman in terms of how much of his superhero career we see on screen. Um, You know, we see his everything from the Waynes being shot to him as a teenager to training with the League of Shadows to returning as Batman as Bruce and Batman to Gotham his early years and then there's an eight year time gap and then he comes back so it's like, we see a lot of this Batman. Um, and, you know, he, he steps away for eight years, vindicated by the police. Not Sorry, not vindicated. Um, what's the wrong word? I can't think of the word I need. Um, where well, you know, the police are hunting him, blaming him for the death of um, Harvey Dent. And he... He hides. He he hides away in the mansion. He, he's no longer Batman. And it's like, yes, they're, they're able to put laws into place to, to help arrest more people, but, you know, they put this Dent Act in. But Batman would still be necessary. Batman could still save lives. And he doesn't. And then... After his presumed death at the end of The Dark Knight Rises, again, he steps away. He's off living the, you know, the happy life with Selena Kyle in, you know, France or whatever it is at the end. Uh, You know, somewhere in Europe, just off living happily. I hate that ending. I really hate it. It is awful. That is... That just feels like a betrayal. That's not the Batman character I know. That's not Bruce and Batman that it should be. I don't care. I don't like it. Um, you know, it even seems like the loss of Rachel in The Dark Knight motivates him more than his parents' murder at times. You know? <sighs> And I I, I hate it. I absolutely hate it. He also is really quick to trust others, which can pay off, like when he's trusting people like uh, John Blake or uh, Commissioner Gordon or Lucius, but it does have his drawbacks because he trusts Raz and Talia and they both betray him. (sighs) I think there's a lot to like in these three Batman films. But yeah, as you may have guessed, Christian Bale's Batman is not something I find myself enjoying a lot. There's certain bits that are amazing, and as a singular vision and a singular story told in three parts, the trilogy is amazing. But, (laughs) but there are issues I have with it being an adaptation of Batman. That doesn't mean these films are bad. They're not bad. But I have issues with them as Batman films. (laughs) Now, the next Batman to talk about is Ben Affleck. Um, Ben Affleck is actually one of the Batman that I think has appeared the most. Um, Being in four separate releases. um, If you count Zack Snyder's Justice League and the theatrical Justice League as two different films technically five appearances once uh, The Flash finally releases, because he's due to appear in that as well. So as you may have guessed, he is the Batman from the DC Extended Universe, um, as it's known, which is the interconnected uh, film universe created by DC to rival Marvel's own cinematic universe. Now, I'm going to be talking about his characterization in a second. Uh, I'm going to base... His characterization, the, the I'm going to look at his characterization specifically in the ultimate cut of Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice and the Snyder cut of Justice League. Um, the reason being that those are the intended cuts by the filmmakers. I'm also going to include his scenes from Suicide Squad as well, um, despite what intentions were there um, you know, David Ayer has said that Suicide Squad was not the movie he made, um, as was released, and I still hope one day that we do get to see David Ayer's own version of the Suicide Squad, um, because i would be very interested to see what that looks like. Um, I think it's up there with me as a holy grail of three, being, um, alongside, uh, Josh Trank's fan four-stick, and, um, Mark Webb's Amazing Spider Man 2, um, where the three of them have had very heavy edits and changes um, in post production or from editorial that have taken them out of the hands of the directors. And I want to see what those directors were originally planning for those films, um, especially as all three of them have been very maligned. And, you know, Zack Snyder's Justice League has shown that if you allow the filmmaker to tell the version that they were wanting to tell, there's a good chance that that will lead to a better film. Um, Now, I'm not a huge fan of Ben Affleck's version of Batman. I'm not a huge fan of the DC and you in general. Um, Especially Zack Snyder's interpretation of these characters. Um, I've stated this before in previous episodes. However, I do think there's a lot to like here. Um, I do think there's certain parts of Ben Affleck's characterisation that is very entertaining. One bit that I am giving myself a little caveat and choosing to ignore um, is I'm going to ignore all of the nightmare sequences. um, This specifically relates to Batman v Superman and Justice League. The reason being, the nightmare sequences do depict Batman being very anti-Batman. Um, you know, he's he's killing, for example. But, they are also depicting a more desperate uh, post-apocalypse future. Um, where Darkseid and his forces have taken over the planet... So I can excuse them for being different, for showing a more ruthless version of Batman. And it also means I don't have to look at the nightmare sequences because to me they are the one part of the films that do not work. The one in Batman v Superman is made better by Justice League, but then the one at the end of Justice League just undercuts the entire movie. If Zack Snyder's Justice League addresses that false future um, that we saw in the original nightmare scene, having another nightmare scene at the end just counteracts that whole thing and seems pointless. Um, So yeah, I get to ignore my least favourite parts of both of those movies um, to judge Batman in this. This is the oldest Batman on the list, um he's been active for well over twenty years um but based on his own words, and he's even lost a robin in the past. so it's an interesting take on the character and it does lead to some very interesting characterization so let's look at it shall we um physicality this Batman is easily capable of taking down multiple opponents single-handedly. The warehouse fight in Batman v Superman, while I'm not happy necessarily with the sheer brutality of it and the fact that some of those people are dead or severely injured, um, I think that the one who gets a crate to the face didn't deserve that. Um, But the actual... The fight scene itself, it feels like something out of one of the Arkham games. And quite rightly, too, it looks incredible. He looks like Batman. He moves like Batman. He hits like a truck. Um, You know, he's using gadgets to help him take people down. It's impressive. It's very physically impressive. Um... This Batman also has this phenomenally demanding training regimen. We actually see Batman train for battle. And it's very impressive. I mean, this is the stuff that these actors do to get the bodies for these films. So, you know, lifting the tires and doing the crossfit and all. Oh, I, I couldn't even imagine doing some of those things that Ben Affleck was pulling off in this. It's very impressive. Um, He is able to gain the upper hand on a depowered Superman. Um, You know, he he fights better than Superman does. Um, He's able to move stealthily on walls and ceilings. He doesn't do it often, but he does do it. Um, We also see him battle parademons. Um, His voice disguise is artificial, but it's a gadget, so that comes under capability. Um, And it's an impressive gadget. I I, th- I think the reason g- the producers gave for it was that it's... Uh, the reason the filmmakers gave is that Bruce Wayne is a famous person. His voice would be recognised even if he tried to disguise it. So he uses an artificial disguise to make it much harder to recognise. And I can buy that. That works. So, yeah, this is definitely one of the more physically imposing Batman. For sure. Um... He just is. And like I said in the, the last section with Christian Bale, part of this is probably just better budget, better stunt work, better filmmaking techniques, just allowing Batman to do more stuff. And that's fine. I This is by far, I think, probably the most physically capable live-action Batman. Capability. Um, He prepares weapons and armor to battle Superman with as well as preparing the location. Like, he selects the location where they fight and plans for it. And this is one of the things that, like I said, a lot of people like to say with Batman. Oh, with time and preparation, Batman can take down anyone. And yeah, he prepares. We see Batman prepare for this battle to take down Superman, knowing how dangerous Superman is, knowing what he's getting himself in for. He prepares for it. And it pays off. He wins. He definitively beats Superman. Um, you know, he, he does. He has Superman at his mercy until the, the Martha moment, which I'll get to in a minute. Um, in Justice League, we see him build several machines to use to help the Justice League, including the Flying Vox, um, which is this big armored troop carrier, um, you know he's got the, he's got the Batmobile as well, so we see him as a pilot we see him as a driver, and yeah he's got skill he's got skills um he deals with Amanda Waller to get information on the metas um to try and prepare more for the future um it's just a little touch in suicide squad, but it's a nice little touch showing that he knows where he can get more information and goes after Amanda Waller, who was one of the mo- more threatening characters in the DCEU to get it. Um, a, a lot of his equipment, though, is worked on more by Alfred than by Bruce himself. Um, <laughs> I mean, that fits with more modern takes on Alfred. Alfred is kind of a the engineer and the... You, you know, he's not just a butler anymore. He is a mechanic as well. Um... Alfred, by the way, is brilliant in these films. Both by Jeremy Irons. And I think losing Ben Affleck as uh, Batman, while I'm a bit disappointed at that, I'm more disappointed that we're going to lose um, Alfred, Uh, Jeremy Irons as Alfred, because he is brilliant. In terms of his intellectualism, he is not given much chance to show his intellectualism in these films. Um he does act completely different as Bruce Wayne. I will give them that. He Ben Affleck I think actually portrays one of my favourite Bruce Wayne's. He's not quite as seemingly airheaded as um Christian Bale's one is but he does show an incredible capability to socially blend. Um, very very well. Like he acts drunk, which is quite funny because Batman is a teetotaler. Um, so yeah, that's very interesting. Um, he actively is pursuing Luther and chasing his connection to Knyazev Anatoly Knyazev right from the start of Batman v Superman. Um, you know he's aware that Luther's up to something. However, he does let himself get manipulated into his battle with Superman and is unaware of the checks being returned, which is presumably Luther's doing. So, yeah, letting himself get manipulated like that is, you know, a negative. to point against him. Um, moral character, he runs headlong into danger from the minute we see him in Metropolis to help people as Bruce Wayne. He's not Batman in this scene. He is Bruce Wayne and he runs straight into danger. Like Wayne tower falls in Metropolis, but he runs straight towards it as it collapses while everyone else is running away. That's brilliant. I love that depiction. Um, However, as Batman, he's begun branding criminals like the worst criminals, we're talking like sex traffickers, child, uh, you know, child molesters, that sort of those sort of people, and that then leads to their deaths in prison. Now, we find out during the course of uh, Batman v Superman that they're being killed as part of Luther's plan by other inmates, but Bruce would presumably know about this. This has been reported in the news. This is why Clark is chasing more information about the Batman, because he's he's trying to learn what's done this. And it's revealed that, like, 18 people have died. 18 of these criminals that Batman has branded have died. And criminals with this brand know what it means to go into prison with this brand. And they are begging not to be put into, like, general population, because they know that they'll end up dead. And that, to me, is crossing a moral event horizon for Batman. That Batman, he's not killing directly, but he's not caring that other people are killing for him. Like, there's no way Batman doesn't know this. And yeah, that doesn't sit right with me. Um, He also actively plans Superman's murder. Like, in the name of protecting humanity, he actively plans Superman's murder. And he justifies it very, very well. Like, his justification that, um, you know, Superman has the power to wipe all of humanity out. So, if there is, like, a 1% chance that he's their enemy, they have to take it as an absolute certainty. That's a brilliant quote from the film. And I love that scene where he explains that to Alfred. Because that sort of extreme risk assessment, I suppose, makes perfect sense. Um, you know, seeing what Zod and Superman did in the previous film, the damage that they caused in Metropolis, the amount of people who died, um, you know, it's completely understandable that he feels that way. Um, And that is the sort of, thing that in modern comics has led Batman to break his no-kill rule. Um, For example, when he tries to kill Darkseid in Final Crisis. You know, so... Yeah, that's an interesting one that I think... I'm not sure how I feel about it, whether it's a good adaptation or a bad adaptation. He does kill other people in the part of this, many, many people get actively killed by him during combat. Like, there's one part where the, um, the Batmobile snags a car with several people in, and drags it behind the Batmobile to use it as a weapon. Those people are dead. They are much. Like, inside that car, they've been battered around. They are mulch. There's no way those people are surviving. Um, and I think he even kills kanyezev Towards the end of the film, like Kenyev's got the the flamethrower trained on Martha, um, and Bruce kills him. You know, he does show compassion to the other members of the Justice League, though, um, especially Barry and Victor. But then there's also there's things like, um, you know, arresting Deadshot in front of his daughter for example, that's that's him being Joe Chill, coming out and killing his parents, essentially. You know, you could try and justify it by saying, well, he doesn't kill Deadshot, but he's, he's terrifying a child by taking her father away. So, yeah, not the most moral Batman. In regards to his trauma, though, This Batman has been active for two decades, including losing a previous Robin. And he says that it has obviously jaded him. Like, you know, there's not many good people left in Gotham. He even says that at one point. Um, Yet, he's never stopped his actions. His actions have gotten worse, definitely. But he's never stopped. He's never been able to stop being Batman. It does take him a while to learn to trust other people and it takes Superman's death to really get him to open up. Um, The The Martha scene. Oh, I hate the whole Martha thing. Like I said, the extreme risk assessment, the plotting the murder of Superman makes perfect sense. And I get what they were trying to do with the Martha scene, trying to show that he's he's reaching this moral precipice you know, he's going to cross this moral line if he kills Superman um, and trying to guilt him into avoiding it by the fact that by some random twist of comic book fate, um, you know, Martha Kent and Martha Wayne have the same name. So Superman saying save Martha, you know, takes Bruce back to his childhood to the murder of his parents You know, to the last word that his father says. I get what they were trying to do, but the film does it so badly. The execution is terrible. Um, And that's the problem with it. But. uh, It is the thing that. Like I said, makes him avoid crossing that moral line. And makes him help Superman and change his ways. And that leads to his depiction in Justice League where he is more more open and more of a hero. So yeah, I get what they're trying to do. I don't like it in the film. But in terms of, from an adaptational perspective, yeah, I get it. And... It's the the whole Martha thing is definitely more a point towards his trauma than the plotting the murder of Superman is towards his moral character. Doesn't mean it's good. It's not a good scene in the film. It's the worst part of the whole film. The whole film unravels at that point. Like the the the, the narrative through line that you've had of Batman versus Superman unravels at that point, and not in the way that they intended. So, yeah. Um, overall, I, I like Ben Affleck as, as uh, Batman. And I wish he was in better films. <laughs> I, I wish the solo film had been made. I think he deserved a film of his own. He's the best Batman we never got a solo film for. Now, before we get to Robert Pattinson... Uh, There is one more Batman to discuss. And that is... Will Arnett. Who played the Lego Batman. Now... The Lego Batman has appeared in three different films. um, But I'm only going to be looking at the Lego Batman film for this. The reason being... The... Two main Lego movies... Are very metatextual. They break the fourth wall. There's a whole thing about how there's a whole subplot about how it's the child playing with the toys. And Batman, while he has a significant role in both films, is essentially a side character. It's usually the main characters of those films um, that the story centers around. So Emmett, Wildstyle, etc. You know, the original characters, um, rather than Batman. Batman is just a character within them. However, Lego Batman, along with Lego Ninjago, was one of two spin-off films for those. And again, while the Lego Ninjago film has its own metatextual elements it is presented as a very kind of... um fourth wall breaking like this is a story from long ago type thing um lego batman is very much within the world it fits with what's established in the lego films as to how they understand their worlds and their multiverse but it is very much a batman film it's a it's a complete batman story told within those films It does feature characters from other media, from other multiverses, like Agent Smith is in it, Sauron is in it, um, King Kong is in it, the Wicked Witch of the West from The Wizard of Oz is in it. But it's still focused on Batman and Batman's characters. And I personally think it's a very good adaptation of Batman. Um, It's one of the more entertaining Batman films, um, it's a brilliant one to watch with kids. Uh, the, part of the problem with these darker Batman films is Batman started as a comic book. And I've said before in previous episodes how comic books have kind of been taken away from kids as the readership and the people... Uh, the people creating them have been made from previous readers and they've wanted to do more adult stories with these characters. That's fine. I completely understand that. But these characters should have an all-ages appeal. You know, they do have an all-ages appeal, so they should be written for all ages. You know, look at some of the stuff that's coming out of Pixar for example, or the DreamWorks films, things like Shrek, where you can tell a story that appeals to both children and adults. And Lego Batman, I think, does that brilliantly well. Like, you couldn't take kids to see some of the other Batman films on this list and have them have a good time. They wouldn't. Some of these films are... Dark and brutal and scary almost for some young children. But while something like the Lego Batman film or Batman 66 is probably more appealing to a younger audience, adults will still enjoy it and adults will still have fun with it. There is a lot to like in the Lego Batman film um, as an adult. I think it's one of the better Batman stories and i think it's a lot of fun it's packed full of references as well like there are some deep cut lore references and name references so if you're a, if you're a, a a deep fan of the batman comics if you're aware of a lot of batman references lego batman is perfect film for you you know this is a film that includes vincent price's egghead and the condiment king and the clock king Along with all the big villains like um you know Joker and Bane and Mr. Freeze and Clayface Poison Ivy etc. And yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. I really enjoy it. Um And I think Will Arnett does a good take on the character, so I'm gonna go through that and explain why. Um Physicality. Partially because it's a cartoon and it's a kid's film. Batman is able to almost effortlessly take down any of his villains, including characters with superpowers. Like, there is a scene at the start of the film where Batman launches into battle against an assembled army of his foes and manages to take them all down while a song is playing that he's singing along to, using just... His grapple gun, his batarangs, and the Batmobile. And his fists and and feet. You know, he takes down Poison Ivy, Mr. Freeze, Bane, Clayface, Orca, uh, Captain Boomerang. He takes them all down. It's a lot of fun. It's very, very silly. It's not taking itself too seriously, but it's very good. And as a result, that means technically this is one of the most powerful physical Batman. Um, There is, like, no distinction between his personas as Bruce and Batman. He is pretty much Batman all the time in the film. And that's uh, a plot point and a characterization thing. Um, But also, considering the limitations of the Lego figure, he moves physically very well. Like, he launches himself around. quite a lot, suggesting that he's a physically strong character um, and yeah, it's a lot of fun um, the capability it is taken to absurd levels he has a gadget for everything and because he's a, a master builder, which is a thing within the Lego movies he can build what he doesn't have um so he builds uh, a gadget called the scuttler um out of like pieces of building <laughs> um, and like a radio antenna and stuff um he is helped in this by the back computer like the back computer provides the instructions for his master build like he says you know activate master build program and it does that for him um but it we can assume that he created the back computer so that makes sense He's also shown to have a wide range of equipment and costumes. Like he has a whole array of different costumes, some of which for only one specific thing. Um, And you know, there's a bit where Robin comes into the Batcave for the first time and is looking at everything and he's like, Oh, there's the Batmobile. Oh, there's the Bat kayak. Oh, there's the Bat space shuttle. There's the Bat train there. He has everything. It's absurd. The, the levels that it's taken to, and it's, It's brilliant. It's chef's kiss. Amazing. Um, And so fun. Um, Not one of the most intellectual Batman though. Um, He does allow himself to be very easily manipulated by Joker into sending Joker to the Phantom Zone. Uh, Joker wants to go there to free the villains that are there to use them to take down Batman. Um, There are very little demonstrations of any of Batman's intelligence in this. Like all of his intelligence seems to come from the back computer. It's not him himself in terms of moral character um while this was a kid's film, um Batman was unlikely to ever be seen killing or using a gun. However, he does seemingly dismember some guards, like they're in uh they're behind a screen, so it's just skeletons, but they do discombobulate into pieces, and like one of them reaches up quite pained. Um, but it's played more for comedy. Um, he does show an apathy of sorts towards his villains, um, in this. Um, especially Joker, um, which is, again, a plot point throughout the film. But they also seem to be bereft of the the tragic or more twisted natures that they have in some other comics. Uh, you know, other sources. Um and he is willing to work with them at the end of the movie, although it does need a bit of a uh, persuading to do so. You know, to actually save the day, they, they have to collaborate. Um, emotionally, this Batman is very, very withdrawn. Um, you know, very solitary, very brooding. Um... And again, that's a plot point throughout the movie. He does accept that he should return to the Phantom Zone towards the end of the film and actually goes to do it, goes to abandon everyone after saving the day um, to accept his duty to return to the Phantom Zone. So, yeah, morally, very good depiction of the character. Um, Trauma. This is the best Batman for an exploration of trauma. Like, the best. The trauma that Batman has is such a key plot point of this film of this car this Batman's characterization. It is the most integral thing to him. Batman learning to trust others is the core part of this film. It affects all of his relationships as he's worried that he's gonna lose everyone around him the same way that he lost his parents um you know he gets sort of tricked early in the film to adopting Dick Grayson and then he sort of uses Dick as Robin to help him to help him steal the Phantom Zone projector from Superman's Fortress of Solitude Um, but you know he feels hurt when he realizes that the Justice League are having a party and celebrating without him and then obviously that leads to him getting closer to Robin but then he worries that he's going to lose Robin. You know, he, he he ends up teaming up with Alfred, Robin, and Barbara Gordon, who comes in as the commissioner. She takes over for her father, the commissioner, um, in this. She said she went to Harvard Police School, which is brilliant. Um, and he gets close to them, and he allows them... He he like relinquishes control to them, um, you know. Batman and this is very self centered, very egotistical. Um, like he's of the opinion no one else has ever had any good ideas ever. Um, but then when he sees what he feels for them and he realizes the strength of his feelings for the three of them, he sends them away. Like towards the final battle in the movie, he goes into the final battle alone because he sent Barbara, Alfred, and Dick away. It's brilliant! You know, so while this Batman has this more cavalier and more light-hearted attitude a lot of the time, his trauma is still present and his greatest fear is becoming part of a new family and trusting other people. And it's it's brilliant. And his whole trauma as well gets echoed with his his inability to empathise with um the films he watches, which are comedy and romance films. He watches a lot of romantic comedies. Um you know, uh I've forgotten some of the ones they list. I know Jerry Maguire is one he's watching at one point in the film. And then they list a few others. Um, when the villains are raiding his um his house. And they're like, why would Batman watch these films? <sighs> And yeah, he kind of forces a laugh when he watches them. Because he, he has this complete inability to empathise with the films. Um, so it's like he's forcing the laughter because he feels uncomfortable. And then this all comes full circle at the end of the film when he comes to trust not only his family but even his villains to help save the day. It's beautiful. It's a brilliant depiction of Batman's trauma. And shows that you can depict Batman's trauma in a way that is child-friendly, for starters. And doesn't involve him being dark and brooding and sitting in a corner all alone. You know, it can... Yeah, it can be accessible for everyone. That, 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 you know, he's scared of losing the people around him because he lost his parents. It's brilliant. There were were Batman comics that covered this. Post-crisis with um, the Robins. When Tim Drake came to him, for example. Yeah, it's fantastic. Love it. Love it. Can't say say enough good things about it. However, um, the only Batman I still have to talk about now is Robert Pattinson. Uh, Obviously, this is a recent film. So this is your last chance before I delve into spoilers. Um, So I am warning you that from this point in the episode, there will be spoilers for The Batman. So if you haven't seen the film um, or, you you know, if you haven't seen the film and you care about being spoiled and you don't want to be spoiled, do not listen to the rest of this podcast. Come back to it later on. Um, you can probably already tell which Batman I'm more fond of, um, which Batman you think I've done, you know, you think I'm going to rate more highly. Um, and if you don't want my opinions of Patterson to, um, you know, if you, you can probably take a guess which ones are my favourites and where they might end up grading. And you know, I'm going to do the conclusions afterwards once I've done Pattinson's. Um, There might be some surprises in there, but I'm going to be grading them with Pattinson's Batman. So, last chance. If you're listening after this, I'm going to presume you've either seen the Batman, or you don't care about spoilers. So, Robert Pattinson's Batman. Let's get into it. So, Robert Pattinson's Batman... The Batman. Firstly, I want to say I was really scared I would hate this film. I was not a fan of a lot of the trailers. I especially was not a fan of the design for the Riddler. The Riddler is my favourite Batman villain. I know a lot of people will say like the Joker or Mr. Freeze or Bane or Two-Face. For me, it's the Riddler he's a goofball and I love it <laughs> I'm I'm very much a fan of Jim Carrey's version of the character despite the fact it's not especially accurate to some depictions of the Riddler my favourite version of the Riddler is the depiction in Gotham played by Corey Michael Smith who I think does a brilliant job as the Riddler um Gotham, in case anyone hasn't seen it, is like a prequel uh, series um, set when Bruce is young, a young man before he becomes Batman. Um, But they did gradually introduce some of the villains as it went on and Riddler was one of them and he was fantastic in it. I'm a huge fan of Gotham and I thought it was a very, very good take on the character. Um, I haven't included it in this, uh, the same way I haven't included the other television shows. Um, But for my money, um, David Mazouz, who played Bruce Wayne in it, while not necessarily playing Batman, was one of my favourite depictions of the character. Um, He had a very clear episode quite early on. Um, Whether he outlined his no killing rule and made it his first rule, and I really liked that and how it built to that moment. Also features one of my favourite versions of Alfred in uh, Sean Pertwee, who does an absolutely brilliant job as like this almost Cockney gangster version of uh, Alfred. But anyway, I'm not here to talk about Gotham. Um, I was I was very upset with the depiction of Riddler, the the, the costume that he has, the very Zodiac Killer inspired look, I was not a fan Um, I struggled to see what this movie was doing that we hadn't already seen in the Nolan trilogy the Dark Knight trilogy and I was struggling to see what would make this different then I saw the film And I was very pleasantly surprised. This Batman movie did a lot of things I've been wanting to see in a Batman movie for a long time. Um, You know, this Batman, we don't see his origin. We don't see the murder of the Waynes again. Thank God. Um, We get to see Batman... As a detective, actually trying to investigate clues and solve a case. You know, Batman is quite often called the world's greatest detective. He first appeared in Detective Comics. And this is the first film where he really feels like he is being a detective rather than just a superhero or a vigilante. And I love it. It's a long film. It's three hours long, but it's very, very good. And I was, uh, I was so happy with it. It was what I wanted from a Batman movie. It's also very beautifully shot. Matt Reeves is a, an accomplished director, and I think he's done a very, very good job. However, I do still have flaws with Robert Pattinson's Batman, and I still have issues with um, Paul Dano's Riddler, despite the fact he worked Brilliantly for the movie and what they were doing with the character, and I think he fits very well in terms of what they were trying to do. And he was actually more fun than I thought he would be. There were some jokes there, there were some some fun, um, and some fun puzzles that you get with the Riddler. I did like that. Um, But how did Robin Pattinson stack up as the Batman? Well, physicality. This Batman always feels physically powerful. Um, He never really feels like he's on the back foot. There's several scenes in the film where he takes on several people at once. Um, You know, and except for one scene towards the end of the film where he gets shot, sort of under the armour, that puts him on the back foot. Other than that, he never feels like he's vulnerable, if that makes sense. Um, He strikes a really fearsome presence when he wants to. Like, the first time we see him is him stepping out of the dark and we just hear these boots clinking As he's walking. Like a cowboy. um, As he walks out of the dark. But at the same time he can also be very stealthy. He does sneak around people. Um, He doesn't really disguise his voice as Batman. But I think part of that is because he's also very rarely Bruce in the film. Um, You know, he's very often Batman. He doesn't really disguise his voice. He doesn't really we never really see him as Bruce Wayne, being Bruce Wayne. Um, you know, there's one point in the film where he turns up for a funeral, and people are like, holy shit, that's Bruce Wayne. Bruce Wayne! Like, you get the feeling he's not seen out in public much. And in fact, the, the the mayor actually calls him out on it and says, you know, your family's known for doing good things, and you're hiding away in your tower. Um... So, yeah, that's an interesting idea. Um, Capability, his gadgets are few and far between, but he does have them. And what he has is very, very good. We see him using like an electrified glove in combat or a a taser or something like that. He's got a grappling hook that's attached to his arm with all these spare hooks um, that he can fire at like a moment's notice. That's very good. Um, he has flares, which he pulls out of his pocket towards the end of the film. He pulls them out of his belt. Um, he doesn't have batarangs as such, but he does have the, um, his chest piece. The bat he has across his chest is like bladed and he's able to take that out of his chest and use it and then pop it back. Um, which is good. I like the, the function of that. Um, So while the gadgets are few and far between, they are very good. His biggest gadget, though, is a recording device. He has these contact lenses that record everything he sees. And he then watches them back later on. um, And sort of studies what he's doing, which goes to his intellectualism as well. He, He studies and notes down his activity, like a diary of what he's doing showing a desire to improve and where he needs to learn and what he needs to do next which is great yeah Um, so yeah that that leads into his intellectualism so let's talk about that Um, I will say he's not the most intellectual Batman as much as he is doing detective work and he does have some very very good insights at certain points um, like we see him walking around a crime scene and he's spotted things that the police have missed most of his main deciphering of Riddler's clues, like Riddler leaves a cipher early on, the clue gets, the cipher gets worked on by Alfred, rather than Bruce. Um, And that does mean that Batman misses or overlooks some vital clues until it's too late to actually do anything about it, too late to stop the Riddler. Um, And there's, one scene, one quite, well, one quite notable part of the movie where a mistranslation of Spanish grammar sends him after a bad lead and sends him after the Penguin. And while it's a very, very good scene and it leads to a fantastic action scene which breaks up some of the the tension that we've had building throughout the movie at this point... Um, it does seem like a rookie mistake because um, the grammar that they've got wrong is the the um, the type of the that would be used because obviously Spanish being a romantic language, having gendered um, items and names and nouns and stuff has different thes. Um, so in, they're looking for Larata vata. But it's not. It's El Rata, or, or, or something like that. One or the other. Um, and he goes after the wrong one, thinking it's the penguin, um, thinking Stool Pigeon, and it's not. It's the rat with wings. Um. So yeah, it sends him after a bad lead, and that takes up a a significant portion of the runtime, about twenty minutes or so. But does lead to a very good action sequence. But it seems like the sort of rookie mistake that. Batman would have checked. You know, the Batman that we know would have checked. Batman would have... I mean, Batman himself in the comics is multilingual, so... You know, he would have known Spanish anyway. Um, In fact, I think he does speak Spanish in several other versions, including the Lego one. Um, Anywho. Moral character. This is where he really excels. Um... His whole stance on guns, like no guns and no killing, is mentioned. And he does try and prevent Selina, Catwoman, from killing at one point in the film. Um, He also gets very affected towards the end of the film by how some of the innocents are perceiving him. Um, But this is where we get into spoiler territory, because this is where it really comes to the forefront. Um, It's revealed that years ago when the Waynes were killed, they were standing for mayor and someone, uh, a reporter, found out that Martha Wayne uh, had been in and out of the asylum, Arkham Asylum, and was trying to blackmail Thomas Wayne with this. Thomas Wayne, who obviously is a surgeon, had patched up uh, mob boss Carmine Falcone who arrived on the Wayne's doorstep injured one day. As a result, Falcone owed Wayne a favour. So Wayne contacted Falcone after trying to buy the reporter off and being unsuccessful and asked Falcone to, um, to you know, silence him. Not killing him, but silence him. And obviously Falcone killed him because he's a mob boss. That's what they do. Um... And that then led to the Wayne's death. Um, you know, it's it was decided. Well, like you know, there's a bit of a a thing up in the air as part of the plot of the movie. Like, did Moroni kill them or did Falcon kill them? Um, but just the truth about his father—that uh, his father. That his father Was in league with a mob boss. And got a mob boss to. uh, To kill someone. Shakes Bruce to his core. And leaves him really angry. And hurt. And like. He yells at Alfred about it. Alfred's in the hospital. He got blown up. He took a bomb that was meant for Bruce. To the face. um, And is in a hospital bed. And he wakes up. And Bruce yells at him. Um, about what Thomas Wayne did um, there's also the fact that Thomas Wayne has uh, put a fund in his will um, that was part of his mayoral promise, put a fund into the city to help redevelop it, the renewal fund and it's basically being used as a mob slush fund um, and that's also again a big thing that he struggles with and then Towards the end of the film, we find out that Riddler is really interested in Batman. He feels like Batman would be on his side because they're both being vigilantes. They're both punishing the the people who are in the wrong. Um, And that shakes him. And then that's followed by Riddler's followers who attack um, the mayoral event in the middle of this big crisis that Riddler has created where the, the city's being flooded. And one of the criminals gets taken down and the police officer's like, who are you? And he's like, I am Vengeance. And that's the line that Batman was using earlier on in the film. Like, Batman calls himself Vengeance throughout this movie. Like, several characters refer to him by the name Vengeance, which is bizarre and a little bit off-putting. But that shakes him and he realises he has to do better And so that leads him to um, cut cable to save the people who are at risk and then move the the rubble to try and lead them out uh, during the crisis. And that makes him stay in Gotham and help during this crisis. You know, half the city's underwater, (laughs) you know, and he's there on the front lines almost. So, yeah, that works really well. I really like that. Trauma, though, um, there's very little explanation as to why he became Batman. Presumably, it's the same thing, uh, the same story that we know. Um, but he he describes it as his father's legacy. and But at the same time, in his diary notes, he's referring to it as the Gotham Project. So it's like, is it true crusade for him or not? I don't know. Um, he does realise, though, that he needs to be a more positive symbol after what he heard from Riddler and Riddler's Men. That he needs to be a more positive symbol for change. He can't just inspire fear, he has to inspire hope as well. And I like that. So, yeah, it's... It's an interesting take on Batman, and I think it excels in um, certain areas. Certain areas do let it down, Definitely. But, yeah, it's a good take on the character. So let's get into the rankings, shall we? So, how did I rank these results? I divided these characters based on each of these five tenets that I identified earlier. The physicality, the capability, the intellectualism, the moral character, and the trauma. And I ranked them individually in each of those categories. um, Between one and nine. And then gave them a weighted score based on where they fell in that ranking. Now, obviously, that ranking has some subjectivity to it. Um, I have to look at, you know, the notes I'd written about their physicality or their intellectualism in a particular role, and then decide whether, well, I felt if that was a better um, representation of Batman based on the original notes that I. would outlined at the start of this episode for that subject or not um so there is still some subjectivity to it um but I do think I've got a decent result I've got a result that I found surprising in some respects um but also that I like and I'm fond of um so yeah I'm gonna go through it um I'm gonna tell you who's The three top and the three bottom for each. Um, So for physicality, um, the Lego Batman, Will Arnett, uh, Robert Pattinson and Christian Bale, I felt were some of the more physically active Batman, Um, the better representations of Batman's physicality. And then the weaker ones um, were Kevin Conroy, Adam West, and Michael Keaton. And as I explained, I think part of that might just be the advances in stunt work over the years. So obviously that left uh, Val Kilmer, George Clooney, and Ben Affleck sort of in the middle. Capability. I had Will Arnett's Lego Batman, Adam West, and Ben Affleck towards the higher end of that scale. um, With Michael Keaton, Kevin Conroy... And Val Kilmer towards the lower end of the spectrum, leaving George Clooney, Christian Bale and Robert Pattinson sort of in the middle. Intellectualism, uh, Adam West, Michael Keaton and Val Kilmer. Actually, I ranked as being some of the more intellectual versions of Batman with um, Will Arnett's Lego Batman, uh, Ben Affleck. And George Clooney being at the lower end of that spectrum. And leaving obviously Kevin Conroy, Robert Pattinson and Christian Bale in the middle. For moral character, Robert Pattinson, Adam West and George Clooney were at the top end of those lists. um, With the bottom end of the list including Ben Affleck, uh, Val Kilmer. And Michael Keaton and the middle of that list including Christian Bale, Kevin Conroy and Will Arnett. And then for trauma, obviously at the top end of the spectrum we have uh, Kevin Conroy, Will Arnett and Val Kilmer. Towards the bottom end we have Adam West, George Clooney and Christian Bale leaving in the middle, uh, Robert Pattinson, Ben Affleck, and Michael Keaton. So, where did this leave them all? Well, there was a maximum of 45 points I worked out. Um, where each of the characters, each of the actors could have possibly scored up to nine, being there's nine different Batmen, so a ranked average, uh, nine possible points in each of five. Um, categories. I mean, there was a total of 45 points available. So, I'll go bottom to top as to who's the most accurate Batman. And I will say, I was surprised by where some of these ended up as well. And just because someone might not be a great adaptation of Batman doesn't necessarily mean they're a bad Batman. Because bottom of the list is Michael Keaton. I like Michael Keaton's Batman. But he's not ranked as highly as some of these others. Just above him, by one point, (laughs) is George Clooney. And the main area where Clooney was able to beat Michael Keaton was um, in terms of his physical capability and physicality. Because as I said, those things just seem to improve in each movie as things just get better. You know, budgets get bigger, stunt work gets better. So yeah. But I found with those two they excelled in different areas and were let down in opposite areas. So between them you'd actually have a very good Batman. Next is Ben Affleck. And again, that surprised me. I I do quite like Ben Affleck's Batman, as I said. And yeah, he's one of the worst ones. But a lot of that comes down to his uh, failings on intellectualism and moral character. Then Kevin Conroy, who I think, had I included the rest of the Batman animated series, would be a lot higher. But I think limiting him to just Mask of the Phantasm means he's... Towards the bottom end of the scale. Christian Bale was bang in the middle. Um, And I prefer some of the ones I've already listed. To Christian Bale's Batman. Um, So yeah. He was just kind of middle of the road. He excelled in some areas. And was let down on others. Then for the top four. Val Kilmer was in fourth place. um, Helped by... Just how well I think Batman Forever handles his trauma. Um, Then Adam West. Second place was Robert Pattinson. And first place was Lego Batman, Will Arnett. If I was to remove the animated movies, it does alter the grading somewhat due to the weighted averages that I was using um, and how I was grading them. Um, Robert Pattinson's still in first place followed by um, West, but Bale now beats Kilmer um, due to some of the areas I was scoring where Bale was now more successful when you remove the two uh, animated versions which means he comes third and then beats Kilmer then Affleck And Michael Keaton now leaves Clooney in last place. Please bear in mind this is not a criticism or endorsement necessarily of any of the films or any of these actors as Batman. It's just an analysis as to how accurately they adapt elements of Batman's core characterisation. I will say some of these are probably improved due to their more comedic nature... I think Adam West's Batman and the Lego Batman films taking things to absurd extremes, same with George Clooney's Batman and Batman and Robin, allows them to score higher because there is just... bizarre, you know, levels that it's taken to. Um, You know, Batman taking... Lego Batman taking down most of his villains with one punch um you know adam west batman having a gadget for everything it's yeah it's <laughs> but yeah i i like some of these batmen that i've ranked low, lower and i dislike some of these batmen that have been rank, ranked higher <sighs> i think the thing with batman and with batman adaptations especially you know, is in some aspects, more modern versions are going to be better, due to advances in filmmaking, such as as I was saying with the physicality, stunt work, and special effects continue to improve, so Batman is able to do more things um, in each film. And obviously, the budgets improve, which allows for more CGI and more stunt work and more elaborate effect sequences, which means these things do continue to improve. And I think we've seen that between going from, say, Michael Keaton's Batman through to Christian Bale and Ben Affleck. They're able to do things that Christian Bale's Batman, uh, Michael Keaton's Batman could only have dreamed of. Um. Does that mean Michael Keaton's Batman when he returns in Flash and Batgirl will be able to do more things than he was ever able to before? Yeah, possibly. You know, um, Michael Keaton as the Vulture, thanks to CGI, was able to do some incredible things in Spider-Man Homecoming. So, yeah, put that same level of technology to Batman. It'd be very interesting to see what he's able to do. (sighs) I think with each Batman as well, though, they're also a snapshot in time. Um, Adam West, for example, is a perfect depiction of the Silver Age Batman. You know, the bizarre elements of the Silver Age Batman. I mean, there was an active push in the comics at the time that the Batman 66 series was on to bring Batman back to his more serious roots. Uh, and away from that comedy um, depiction that was ruling the airwaves. But that doesn't mean that that depiction doesn't have merit on its own right. I think as well, were I to grade Adam West Batman with the entirety of that series, he'd probably be a lot lower on this list. It's just that his outing in the first season and that first film especially is so strong. But those Batman 66 gets very, very silly towards the end. Very silly. And that would ruin that version of Batman. Um, so yeah, while Adam West is a perfect depiction of the silver age Batman, um, Keaton, Affleck, Bale, Pattinson, they all reflect either very specific story arcs or very particular depictions of the character of Batman. So, for example, Ben Affleck's version is very much inspired by the older version seen in Dark Knight Returns, for example, or... You know, Christian Bale and Robert Pattinson's both having elements of Batman The Long Halloween and Batman Year One in their depictions. Similar with Michael Keaton, he's very much inspired by, again, Batman Year One, Frank Miller's work on the character in the wake of um, Christ on Infinite Earths. You know... Batman 89 came out only five years after. Crisis on Infinite Earth, So it's very much inspired by that relaunch of Batman. So yeah. I think all of them have their merits. And their faults. Both as films and stories. In their own right. And as adaptations. But. This was an interesting experiment to do. To look at how accurate an adaptation these characters might be. Uh, You know, these takes on a character might be. For my money, I think my favourite depiction of Batman out of these... Overall is probably Val Kilmer's. I really like the depiction of Batman forever. That said, I'm also a big fan of Ben Affleck's take. And I'm a big, big fan of the Lego version. Um, I'm excited to see what Robert Pattinson does next. I really hope they add Robin. Um, I really want Robin to come back in a Batman film. (laughs) Really want it. But yeah, I'm interested to see what happens with Batman next. We've got presumably Michael Keaton's Batman returning, Ben Affleck's Batman returning, and Robert Pattinson's Batman getting more to do. So yeah, I'm intrigued for the future of this character. But yeah, if you disagree with me, that's fine. Please keep it civil. Uh, feel free to let me know what your favorite Batman is and why. Um, you know, if you think I'm completely wrong, and that you know your favorite Batman is a much better interpretation of the character, then please, yeah, let me know why. If if you feel there's something I've missed, please tell me. Um, it'd be fun to discuss that, provided we can keep it all civil. Um, yeah, I don't want shouting matches or mudslinging or anything like that, so yeah. Until next time, my friends, take care of yourselves. Hi, everyone, just a brief little outro before we uh sign off for the week. Um Apologies for the delay of this episode, it was written a while ago, but I was struggling with my mental health, which is one of the reasons why I say to all of you every week, or every time we do this, please look after your mental health, because I'm struggling with mine and I know how awful it can be. Give you a brief look at upcoming episodes. Um... By the end of March I'm hoping to have my next episode out which will be based on the Jerry Anderson television series Thunderbirds um, I'm very excited for this one I love Thunderbirds it hits all my nostalgia buttons in just the right way and it's one I would love to talk about so that's what I'm going to do um, I'm taking a break Um April. Uh, My usual upload date would be April 9th. Um, I am taking that off. I'm on holiday. It is my birthday on April the 5th Um, so if you would love to send me anything I I don't publicize it very often but I do have a Ko-Fi link, uh, Ko-Fi coffee, coffee link in my uh, link tree uh, which you can find attached wherever you've found this podcast um so please if you would like to buy me a coffee on there for my birthday it would be gratefully received thank you uh, for doing that um towards the end of April I'm going to be doing an episode on Aliens uh Aliens is one of my favourite film series um And as a result of that, I'm going to be watching uh, Prometheus and Alien Covenant for the first time, because I have not seen those. Um, I was staying away from them, hoping that that they'd be finished, Um, but the third film seems to have suffered and died as a result of the Disney buyout, so yes, I'm going to discuss the films as they are, and their links to... Uh, other franchises including Predator um, briefly but mainly Aliens because the 26th of April is Aliens Day for anyone who doesn't know Um, this is because the planet in the first two Alien films is called LV426 so you write that in an American calendar system 426 April 26th so yes Aliens Day Um, so my episode will be up for that um, and then after that um, well, a couple of weeks after that when my next episode will release is shortly after May the 4th so I'm going to be having a look at how Disney has changed Star Wars um, I'm very excited for this I've kept up to date with as much of the Star Wars stuff as I can by which I mean I know what's going on in it but I haven't necessarily seen it all So this is one I'm going to be watching and re-watching a lot of stuff um, for the first time, including some stuff I'm very dubious about, like Rise of Skywalker. Um, And yeah, I'm going to be discussing it with you lovely people. So please join me for that. Um, That should be a lot of fun. Beyond that, uh, I have several other episodes in mind I'm looking at films I'm looking at television shows I'm looking at comic books um some stuff that has anniversaries some stuff that doesn't uh I'm planning a big MCU update for the summer I was planning a look at the DCEU towards the end of the year uh after the Flash movie however the Flash movie has now been pushed back to next year um so, we're looking at doing that then, possibly. <laughs> um, I don't know. I probably will do a DC... A look at the EU before then. Um, but probably not this year anymore. Um, but there's a lot of fun stuff coming. So, stuff I'm very excited to talk about. So, hopefully, you will all join me for it. Um... I think it could be a lot of fun. So, yeah, look after yourselves. Please look after your mental health. It's a struggle, um, especially in the modern day. It can be very, very hard. Reach out, talk to someone. That's the biggest thing I can advise. Make time for yourself to do the things that you want to do, the things that give you pleasure to enjoy your life. Don't just be working and sleeping the whole time. Take the time for yourself. That's the most important thing I've learned from my own therapy is take the time to enjoy yourself. Um, But yes, definitely reach out if you are struggling. People around you care and they want to know that you're doing well. So please look after yourselves and... I will see you all in the next episode, hopefully. Till next time. Thank you very much for listening to Gardo Goes Geek. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to recommend it to your friends. If you would like to get in touch with me to discuss a topic or an idea for a future episode or to give feedback on the episode you just listened to or any of our others, then you can reach me at any of my social medias. I am at Gardo on Reddit, at Gardo Hedgehog on Twitter or at Gardo on Instagram. All of my social media links as well as links for everywhere this podcast can be found are contained on Linktree Gardo. Thank you for listening and until next time.